Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer weiteren hallo. Sitzung vom Corona-Ausschuss. Das ist unsere 153. Insights in medicine and fighting corruption. We have arrived at a strange point in time. Our project is coming up also with Eisen. We have Discovery going on. Bergamo came up. More and more things are merging by the week, so to say. Media station is sending these things. The vaccination Einstellung, die da herrscht oder sich breit gemacht hat, oder man geht über Leichen, die irgendwie den Business sind, also Aktienbehinderung, auch davon eine, eine Charge mit toxischen Nebenwirkungen vom Markt nehmen und darauf hinweisen, out of the Ich 
uh, things do not Take care everywhere, uh, keep your eyes open, be vigilant, and ask for second or third opinion, especially In this sense, I'm happy to welcome Bernhard Berkholz with us. Maybe I can just uh, uh, I give lectures, which um, um, still, and, um, and uh, are active, and uh, nano materials, and that fits in with the topic of um, the infection. Oh, just to pick up what you've just said, it is interesting to see the curious twists that we have to get involved with. Uh, we couldn't know that. So things are strange, we knew this, and uh, with vaccinations, um, we saw it is disaster. Well, and actually, this is a very uh, mild uh, expression, and actually, um, the those responsible do not respond to the responsibilities. As you mentioned, the competent institutions in uh, Great Britain and in the FDA, for example, uh, FDA in the US as well. So the question is not if um, something is wrong, but just what. And we also heard from our health minister um, that he said, like, there are side effects, but just a few. And he said, like, uh, one in 10,000, one in 10,000 CV side effects. And um, the figures of the Paul Ehrlich Institute had been known like uh, one to five thousand um, even more and if you take a look at these studies or the official figures from Hong is like one in twenty one in forty injections have 
um, other countries, they do seamless documentation, but this is not my core task. But anyway, there are paramount tasks awaiting us, and well, uh, there will be at least three million that have. Um, clear side effects in a way that they cannot continue living their lives as before. It does not mean they are um, incapacitated, unable to work, but uh, still. And of course, and um, those people who died because of those uh, shots and Mayo Clinic in Cleveland a study and they monitored their staff members very well and how often did it occur that somebody tested positive for COVID-19 and at the same time they had the matching symptoms. So yes, according to official definition, they did get additional uh, COVID infection. And children, at least of them, one, two, three, um, two, even more, three, even more, or even more. So it is uh, incredible. It is not just that there was no efficacy, but there was negative effectiveness. And, um, this leads me to my subject problem. And um, this is really unbelievable, the so-called change. And we could uh, talk about that definition in general, but the draft um, concerning heating issued by about Habeck's institution, and it is a very long and really um, unstructured document. And I am more or less speechless how much uh, nonsense it contains. So let's proceed one by one. So why are they doing it in the first place? Um, 1.5 degrees, that an objective, I think this is an objective defined in Paris that the states committed to. And if you want to achieve it, you have to attack this task. And in the introduction of the document, it says one third of primary energy consumption really is the heating sector. We are also industrial heat, but anyway, heating in a private family homes in factories and also in public buildings and let me say it right away some are more equal than others and it is like clarity but when it comes to public buildings um, it is different like um, oh can't we ask if we have the money one could argue and then of course no, sorry, I um, heard a noise. Okay. And of course, uh, there is uh, this new regulation, and I also took a look at it, and uh, certainly certain things have been taken over. For example, monitoring of 
energy consumption for heating purposes. Yes, okay. One has committed to that objective. You have to act. But things that, uh, you know, this is just a draft, and as far as I know, it has not even been brought through the private and um, there is a saying like uh, no draft and like its original version, but anyway, um, it is really curious and what is really what has been discussed back and forth as next year, whenever a new heating will be installed, at least 65% should be should come from a renewable energy that is a very laudable objective. But um, the main direction and the matrix is on heat pumps. Heat pumps basically are a good idea because they measure the ambient temperature, the outside temperature, and for one kilowatt hour um, electrical energy at like three to four kilowatt hours of electrical energy, but, uh, you know, talking about this 65%, um, these um, heat pumps run on electrical power, and uh, it's about 45% and more or less should come from renewable energy. So if I take this seriously, if I have a heat pump, I am not allowed to operate it, at least not if you take this draft seriously. So this is something I don't understand right from the start. Maybe you can help me, but a 65% means 65%. Is it totally true that must only partly be operated on electrical energy? Or what is the calculation? Well, somewhere in this document, uh, the word primary energy occurs. And also uh, the calculation includes uh, that a one kilowatt hour electrical power with three to four hours of heat. But I think this is not plausible if I understand this draft more. I invest in terms of energy, no matter where it comes from, it should be renewable by 65%. The question we cannot answer here, but it's a question mark. So primary energy is um, the energy that you need in order to fire it, to operate it, yes. Something you um, buy outside, for example, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen that excess renewable energy has been the basis for it. Then you have 100% of renewable energy, but um, green hydrogen Then they're talking about blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is generated uh, from normal gas, from natural gas, with a device that is called renewable 
natural gas is not renewable. So, at least in this point, um, it looks as if it was a very immature document. So, if they want to pass on this draft cabinet, um, they would have to clarify this question. The thing is, and by the way, this 65% will be valid as of the 1st of January for new heating installations, newly fitted, which, by the way, Next to the fact, I know our plumber very well, and um, um, it is uh, also um, our chimney sweeper that in this district alone, 40 uh, heating installations are, have been renewed, although there was no problem about them just in order to evade the duty for fitting a heat pump as of January next year, which is basically not okay because every, um, you know, every installation, you know, has a certain CO2 uh, output and the production as well. And um, making new devices with CO2 emissions as well. So it is not those people um, who actually panicked, but it is really those who want to want this law to be passed. Okay, but there must have been incentives also for the, you know the scrapping bonus which um, the car owners um, really um, scrapped their um, old cars so as to get an incentive for buying a new car. And it probably was in order to fuel the car industry. And uh, anyway, it was a kind of uh, greenwashing at this entire policy, greenwashing the same of that. But I have got a question as well. So um, it needs to run on electrical power. What if fit a heat pump? What would be? Um, the power, you know, nuclear power, do they call it green energy? Yes, strangely enough, yes. And then it is certainly justified because the older and written off and actually um, the CO2 emissions, you know, were really made up for. But it is really strange that um, the remaining three nuclear power stations have been closed down, and instead, it was coal power stations that um, had to be commissioned. And it is really true. I really doubt 
das rausnehmen mit der Kapazität von 4 bis 5 Gigahaut. This capacity of 45 Gigahaut power capacity could simply be made up for. And when it comes to the power grid, um, have also unusual movements in the grid capacity. Because it automatically creates a balance between consumption and generation, because it always has to be fitting up to the last kilowatt hour, because the um, power stations really are um, tackling large power masses and if um, there's excess production and they um, kind of break it and they tap on the excess capacity and the other way around. So in recent times there have been big unusual and they were not um, dangerous Less one would say the um, resilience of the grid against um, surveillance and feed in worse. And uh, if you take out power stations, um, you have a really um, reduced. Um, over capacity and of course we have the European um, kind of um, um, integrated grid, so the problem is not um, too big, but maybe we need um, controlled shutdowns in the near future so that capacity openings come too big. There are some rules to associate against a backdrop of um, some infrastructure program that uh, certain investments are to be channeled, like that uh, economy should be fueled. There are um, big um, compromises. For example, individual houses really cannot inhabit it because it means a big interference. And well, if you really um, comply with that, it's certainly true. But it is similar to the COVID-19 situation, you know, really means micromanagement and um, to be honest, it is a really imposing things on the citizens and this is paternalistic really. And our chimney sweeper really criticizes all these rules, saying that it is far too complicated. And what is worst about all this legislation, and this is another piece of craziness, is that whether you have a single family 
or whether it is a block or flat, actually a bigger building or a commercial building that the energy consumption will be monitored is also good that the areas of like the data would be stored for three years or so in order to have like um, they store the data every week or so, so far so good. They want to know whether the energy saving measures have been effective. That is not so bad as such. No. Um, remote monitoring is to be enabled. That means the manufacturer and probably also the environmental ministry or even other authorities would then have the possibility of um, checking the data of each individual household remotely. And, well, maybe the intent is not malicious, but it is quite clear what it all boils down to. The only thing what this remote possibilities enable is that you can control what individuals are doing, and I think this is not acceptable at all. Well, and this actually is mentioned in the context of data privacy when it comes to um, the power sector. The friends of ours have access to their PV installation and the data that are being monitored. They gave us the data. I exactly know when they get up. And if I were interested, when do they go on holiday? And when was there an unusual event? And the same um, goes for heating concerning data privacy. This is by no means acceptable. And then how does this data um, get published. There are two possibilities. It is like with smart metering, as it has been for Germany, digital meter, which is not smart meter as such. But next to it, there is a so called gateway. And it sounds cute. It is, in principle, a smartphone that regularly communicates data from my central meter to the outside world. And this is something that gives rise to additional reservations. So every hacker, of course, would be able to capture this data. And like in our case, if uh, this meter is in the cellar, it is um, sending radio waves at maximum power, you know, because I have a smartphone then in my house that is really communicating electromagnetic waves. And it is uncontested that people who are very, some people are very sensitive and others are not. But the negative effect, if uh, you hold your smartphone to your ear for too long, uh, this effect has been proven already. So everybody who does not um, want to use their cell phone on their ear, they should either use hand-free 
or um, avoid um, or use headphones instead. Do you know how much better you would feel if you did not sit in this uh, radiation environment. And you told me that you don't notice it. And the same goes for me. I don't really notice it. I was once in a room and it was uh, a cellar-like structure and uh, there was a transmission of information. And I felt uh, busy in a way and I couldn't see properly. I don't know whether this was the actual reason, but maybe one could thrive even more if this did not exist. And then you also told me um, what about the electricity consumption also, we had a story about like, who lives where and how many other people live there. I could imagine even other circumstances. If, um, you want to offer a hiding place for somebody, um, you couldn't even hide this information anymore. I have a beautiful example in that context, and uh, this is close to Hong Kong. Um, Close to it, um, you know, uh, this is a 15 um, million city, but um, there's also Shenzhen close to it, and uh, we have, uh, we source many electronic appliances from there. And experts on the spot say 15 to 17 million is the official figure, but actually, we know due to the water and electricity consumption that it needs to be at least into 20 million and if there are three people living somewhere and a fourth person is added you would notice immediately in other words um it is a lot of control and Exchange was of service, and they won. And I changed that successfully. I didn't install the smart meter in my house in Austria. I don't know if this is the data sent over the grid, but that's not better anyway because frequency signals and if I'm quite close to the next uh, transformer station with the receiver, um, all the data will, uh, everybody else behind me, so to say, will also pass through my grid. So I have data traffic in my grid, high frequency data traffic, and that will help us. Uh, cause additional radiation and be in a better. So besides the, um, if I wanted to, I could uh, grab this data and decipher them and see what my neighbors are doing. And of course, that's a complete echo. And to this um, heating recognition, there is a lot of transition periods and so on, but in general, most old buildings um, are not suitable for installation 
of a heat pump. Why? Because the way they are, they lose energy. They need, with the existing radiators, which are quite small, they are not big spaces, they need a heating temperature of about 60 degrees, 70 degrees if it's cold outside. But the heat pump cannot do this because the efficiency of the heat pump will go down the drain at 1.5 or even worse. So that means, and that is what said, I have to do something else. And uh, then the buildings, and given in the EU regulations, um, certain efficiency classes. However, you heat your home, and that would mean you have to take insulation measures and renew your whole heating system because the radiators that you may have now are not uh, used so for that. So I have to have uh, um, a large space radiators, or I have to have heating. I want to quote my chimney sweeper again. Um, who is one of the experts, and he told me that he had a house out of the 80s, and his estimate, which is quite good, I suppose, is he would have the best 90,000 euros in order to fulfill simply the requirement. And this brings an interesting paragraph, which I read out, is 102, in the regulation of the efficiency, building efficiency regulation in Germany. And uh, here it says that uh, they added, this means if the necessary investments are not in relation to the yield, then um, this is additional hardship and an unacceptable hardship is also a case if the necessary investment cannot be done in a, a feasible of building. And this should consider those of the act that the acceptable price for energy according to the international emission trade, have to be considered. And so again, the question to the tutorial here, would that mean if I have an old building and I can't do this 90,000 euro investment, in my example, would that be an unacceptable hardship that I'm exempted from the regulations or not? I, I fear to ask that question, that's not a clearly defined term, so if you have the second part of that, I don't understand this that. That seems to say, oh, well, CO2 emission cause is priced at so-and-so many years. And we have had an increase already. Now, uh, it's kind of 50 euros per ton, or 30 euros per ton, I think. 
and that may well time. And the price development for energy, something that we all know of, uh, what our normal cost in 30 cents, but 50 cents, the saving is bigger and bigger if I use less. And so what I want to say is, you don't have to consider today's prices, but if you want to claim for acceptable hardship, you have to look 20 years into the future and calculate that price increase. Uh, elsewhere, they write, it is not very unsure, not, it's not very sure, it's very speculative. Yeah, I don't know how I would have to decide this if I were a judge. I don't know what basis that should be done. I can give you an example. From the Energy Savings Act, there was an architect who died by now, Konrad Fischer is his name, from Bavaria. And he had a website, by the way, and that's a great source of information. That's the point he described that he had refurbished a building as an architect, and in this context, um, the approval office, uh, office wanted to uh, wanted him to do much more installation, and then he claimed for that unacceptable hardship because at the time said if the expected savings is not. Uh, Compensate. It doesn't compensate the investment in 10 years. This is unnecessary hardship and it doesn't apply. That's what Rotterdam accepted. Calculated it then. And here, probably look at 20 years. So all of this still in the flow. And uh, just to make this clear again, it is here mongering document and people are afraid of having to kick out their working having to pay thousands and ten thousands of euros and there's something else interesting um also says that there are periods if i have an old heating system uh, we have got a uh, damage case, which is covered as well. And in this case, you probably won't get a new heating system right away. And then you are allowed to put in a new or used heating system and you to three years. So let's assume I have a heating system and it'll break down 2024. Then I'll play that card, expect, of course, speculation that in the next elections the Greens will be kicked out of the Parliament and we'll get a government which is more sensible 
and hopefully this law will be banned and cancelled. So I'm hoping for sense to come out to politics. Yes, but I wouldn't need the German Act, so I expect the German regulations to be stricter than the EU regulations. So, well, off the cuff, I can't say. Do you know the monitoring and the meeting that is covered from the EU <coughs> regulation? In the EU regulations, if I recall they have to consider that uh, Sweden or Finland, for example, different, a different situation that Spain and Portugal have, or Italy. Okay. And then that's kind of a band regulation. It has to be a certain percent better than now, so I think it has to be concretized in every country individually, and that's, of course, uh, sensible to make this applicable nationally, make sure it all squares in. But to the beginning, is it all together, does it make sense? And here I have to mention that there are many, many saying that CO2 is irrelevant for the development of the temperature. So, if you say that irrelevant, you have to say, so then what provokes uh, the temperature increase from the 70s on and uh, from 1930 to 70 made the temperature drop. That. So in the 70s, there were expectations uh, of an ice age. And what uh, happens to the temperature? Um, uh, and the temperature is determined by the activity of the sun. That's what we can say, and we can read that in the number of sunspots. Um, from 60, 60, 70, and uh, Europe was cold, colder than now, and from um, in the 1970s we had a period of very high sun activity, and the radiation of Sun increased, but that's not enough to explain it. So the mechanism behind this, for me as a physician, is understandable, and published in no times, the sun radiates high, high energetic protons, and how much of that happens depends on the sun, and they interact with the magnetic field of the Earth, that affects the cloud formation on Earth, 
And we have that again determines whether we have a cool summer or a hot summer. And that's what we see. So there are models that uh, explain this. And um, that brings us back to the models that can't either the, the uh, cloud formation or the radiation. Um, to decide on the error, the precision of the models is 20 30 degrees. So this 1.5 degree goal is um, the basis for all of this regulation and directions nonsense. But this is something that we can't really pose at the moment. I think the uh, short goal must be to criticize the details of this and uh, then uh, try to stop it if possible. Of course, then the question is it's still there. Yes, it depends on uh, on uh, regulations that we could stop or uh, file constitutional uh, claims, uh, complaints, and data protection will be one approach. Another approach that is not possible to operate a heat pump properly, but in the long run, I agree with you. We have to see the agenda behind this, and uh, we have to see that the basics, the basis of climate panic is fear mongering as well. It's a marathon. Just like Corona, Corona is not over. So I think the most urgent issue is that uh, doctors like Prohn, Carola Kistel and others who I'm mentioning now, they are still facing courts. And I think that is incredible. This should be stopped immediately. Because it's been it's undisputed by now that masks not only didn't help, but that they caused damage. And all the doctors who 
Papiere ausgeschrieben What are your findings in this respect? Well, there are many things that indicate that it is included in some charts, in some batches, but it's not for sure. Two reasons. The uh, Quinta Columna, um, the researchers, what they published, I'm a bit skeptical about what they did. But I do know, uh, seen, I didn't uh, say that, I have seen Michael Raman photographs of these respectable um, objects which were quite graphene with a Raman uh, spectrum that is clear. I'm not sure if there's very work of somebody taking a structure of the substance. So, if I had the bet that there is a thing of life in some some people say it's completely off. I thought that, well, up to the point when I found publications that in this new cancer therapy, and adjuvant used there is graphene oxide. So, well, well, if it's not in pharmacology used to the body, I read that um, used in order to these molecules bit by bit, not all at once. Uh, to control this, I think we can pick up a lot structure, and you can construct containers, reservoirs that release the molecules bit by bit only. I could imagine that they are working on this, but I don't know either. Well, what I also know from standardization work is um well uh, this is actually a secondary scene but uh, i'm part of the electrical uh, standardization but in parallel the iso uh, standardization and on uh, nanomaterials i noticed that just as the medicine efforts that this graphene or other nanomaterials would also um, get um, molecules attached and they are made to be magnetic so that this active substance as you called it would then be transported to their destination when it comes to cancer it actually makes sense but 
it is absolutely irresponsible to my mind to give um, and inject healthy children. This would on a large scale, you know, healthy humans are exposed to substances and, on the other hand, tracing is enabled by the uh, billing procedures and the ICD standards used by medical doctors. So they are now using a potential to um, make a trial with people who do not know what is going on with them. It would be criminal behavior, but actually the inhomogeneity of shots is obvious. It's a proven fact, and the manufacturing and the composition is being changed. And uh, it's unconceivable for medical drugs. So actually, a lot is being tried around, and maybe something has been tried with graphene oxide. Yes, well, I think uh, it is contained in uh, some batches, and in others it is not. You know, under the microscope, you don't see it. And um, at actually, this. Um, Graphene oxide looks like tin, and um, graphite actually is uh, layered on top of each other. And then there are certain chemicals within these layers, and actually you end up with this, uh, you know, tinsel-like structure with one, two, or three layers. And under a microscope, it looks exactly. And so, you know, it is not a regular structure. It is probably, you know, some kind of crystallized structure of the nanolipid uh, substances. And there is a Danish uh, trial now, it is quite good, and actually in this Danish uh, trial, they uh, used Danish data of the Danish Health Authority, and they standardized it to 100,000 um, shots. And they checked uh, the side effects, and actually they defined uh, three categories of batches. And in one, there's hardly anything, and then there's a medium, and uh, then uh, disaster lots. And in normal circumstances, this must not happen. And there's another thing that's quite clear now. I think it comes from uh, Australian documents. It leaked from them um, for the trial where there were like 30,000 shots, the right substance. And um, it was um, a level of kilograms with the best um, content, really. And um, the best reagents. And then it started off with 40 liters. And now it's even more. Uh, these bioreactors that we need. And you now have other reagents 
So that uh, this actual substance can be made in a different manner, and it also turned out like ring-like structures, like plasmide. It is uh, irresponsible. You know, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, the Italian authorities, the UK, the US authorities, and others, what they did uh, unbelievable. First, you have to say that very clearly in these authorities, there are many uh, experienced pharmacologists and have pharmacovigilance is organized by them, and they know how to comply with standards. I'm just trying to think how they must feel now. They control everything, after all, and they're silent and they let everything happen, and they don't move, and apparently it is more important to them not to get into trouble instead of uh, preventing serious damage and serious harm to people. I feel so sorry, it is so terrible to imagine this. How must these people feel? How must people feel um, who have a function in these authorities that they have to witness um, um, damage done to people. Like, um, I can only appeal to them, uh, say what's going on, ask the right questions, don't let this happen. You are heroes, and, and society as a whole will be grateful to you. It is indispensable to have this behavior. Yes, I can only tell you on the basis of my own experience, and the administrative court in Leipzig is uh, dealing with at the Paul Ehrlich Institute, uh, they knew better than what they explained they were allowed to do it. And with one person, Dr. Wagner, I know from publications that he must know um, that uh, what is going on and that it's not correct. Yes, those responsible will know are really guilty. And, and the longer you are part of the game, it must be even more difficult to evade this. And you will be happy that you have uh, not caused too much harm. I don't know how many more shots there will be administering, but at least they are not exerting pressure anymore. And um, they could, of course, uh, say, oh, I hope that they will not catch me. But it's a guilt that you cannot nullify. And uh, you were talking about uh, side effects earlier, uh, 1 to 20 up to 1 to 40, which would actually mean that in every family or circle of friends, people will be affected. And I've asked this question already, but the main short period is like one and a half, one, one and a half years ago, and G2, G3, and so on. And then in 2022, the system collapsed. Yes, so people usually don't get shots anymore. Uh, how about these people? Are they still in danger? Is uh, is it possible that any long-term side effects may occur? 
where Anna Burkhardt and Ryan um, Cole, I think uh, the pathologist from Idaho, they know that six months later, record, I think it's eight or even ten months, that you continue to find the spike protein and Pascal Nayadi from Switzerland. And I think he comes from a family of bankers and he has commissioned investigations. And I can only put what he said that spike proteins have still been found in his blood. And I remember that there was a study from something with a method Zumoa single molecule monoassay Simoa and this method more uh, sensitive than the ELISA test and it's true that it does not uh, stop and Mr. Cullen from Münster it this way, he compared it with the restaurant. There is a slip of paper in the kitchen, and they say, like, um, you um, make this dish, and then the slip of paper is torn. And um, this, in this case, um, it is never torn, but the cell continues to make these proteins. And the fear is that those people who, uh, let's say, who do not sense any side effects, that uh, they are not safe. And for those who did not side effects, we don't know. And it is also the fact that less babies were born. And this trend was reversed minus 8% until November, and um, the figures have been updated, but um, I think, you know, it's difficult. Actually, we are in a crash because our next guest is short. Time, but I would like to get back to two aspects because they're really Italian leaks that have heard. There was a graphic showing that the share of Yenadi effects as compared to the uh, mild side effects that were reported. We have to be careful with these figures because many side effects are not reported, but 88.1% um, of the severe side effects and 11. Um, uh, mild side effects and 11.9% um, mild side effects. I hope this is visible. And then, um, at the request of a staff member, then we can one presented in a less drastic way. So this is um, the struggle with 8.1% at this end. 
dort bestimmten die noch mehr Freunden sind. Of the corporate authorities and Danish studies, one could also find out how these groups, um, there, there is some kind of geographic pattern, some distribution, um, maybe just uh, nursing homes. Is there any specification or is it only these three groups? What do you think? Now, then, I would really, really need to but in Denmark, it is only 8 million or 6 million. And I have not retained anything like that, but I wouldn't exclude it either. Okay, thank you very much, Anna. I think like to um, add it to the link. And thus, um, we are already revising everything. So it would really be good if uh, we could uh, develop that. Thank you very much, Werner, for updating us. And um, it is really good to um, publish what is going on there. Well, yes. And just in let me emphasize that this more meetings, the parallels are so striking and um, there is a lot of um, paternalism. Physically, it doesn't make sense, 65% move energies. With a heat pump, it cannot be achieved, and at the same time, it means spying the citizens using smart meters. So uh, this is a principle that uh, apparently has been valid since COVID-19, and you should really digest that. Thank you very much for giving me time to explain my okay, we will continue in English. So we have interpreters and there were technical problems in one of the past sessions, so we were not sure whether the technology would be up and working. So we hope that you will be able to um, uh, greet our next guest. Um, can you hear us? Kirk, um, Dr. Kirk Miller, are you with us? Yes, hello. Hi, how are you guys? Hello, hello. nice hello. to see you. Hi. Yeah, um, you are a cardiologist and uh, you have made some observations like during the, I guess, mostly the, the vaccine um, activity. And yeah, it would be great if you could like introduce yourself with a few words to our, to our audience. And then I'm very curious to hear what, you, what your findings are. Sure. Well, before I became a pediatric cardiologist, I got my PhD in studying cellular myocardial inflammation and looking specifically at how the endothelial cells, which line the blood cells, how they interact with the myocardium and how, what, how they're involved in the cascade that causes inflammation in the heart. So I did that for five years before I went to medical school and went to um, uh, then did my training in pediatrics and pediatric cardiology. Uh, so when we started seeing COVID, um, 
it was acting like uh, a vasculitis or something that was disturbing the vascular um, cells. Um, we saw that all, as well as the cells that interact with the vascular um, uh, cells, and that's the blood cells, specifically the platelets. So when I was looking at the cascades, um, uh, when I was looking at the cascades that were happening within the cellular environment, what I found was that platelets were actively intimately involved in the inflammation that follows when the heart is upset. It's damaged somehow, uh, whether that's a lack of oxygen, a lack of blood, uh, infection, it, it goes through similar cascades. Um, and so as I was hearing COVID come out, I was thinking, wow, this is a vasculitis and this is causing clots and this is doing this. And so you're, you're thinking that this is going to be interacting with platelets and the endothelium, which has been true. So as the way that the vaccines were developed, they were developed with the very item that is causing the vasculitis and the um, inflammation that we're seeing in the whole body. Um, and, and so it's, it, you know, I did my PhD, I started it almost 30 years ago, uh, or finished it almost 30 years ago. And it's interesting now to see it come back. It's, it's quite uh, serendipitous that uh, uh, what I did now is pertinent to what we're seeing in our world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, um, and so because that was your opinion in the beginning, did you then this see this becoming like true during the, what you, what you could see like COVID, long COVID, and how does that, um, what kind of um, interference is there with maybe the vaccine? Yeah, I, I think that that's, I started thinking more and more that this was going to, uh, this was acting in a similar pattern. And then, you know, we didn't know a lot about the vaccine that was coming out. It came out so quickly. It was, it was the fastest vaccine really I had ever seen come out with very little testing, with a new model of using these lipid nanoparticles to actually cause um, the, or ask the body to make a protein. But it wasn't normal mRNA. It was a, it was a sort of a, a hybrid mRNA with pseudouridine instead of uracil. Uh, which had a longer half-life um, and uh, you know just like COVID, everybody has sort of a, a different um, uh, everybody's body is a little bit um, different um, whether it's with the vaccine or whether it's with COVID and that's why I think you see this dramatic change uh, difference in responses to both COVID and uh, to the vaccine uh, what is different for children is children have very little problems with COVID. A healthy child has very little problems with COVID. Flu is much worse than a healthy child. There are a lot of, I know they're trying to say that's not true, but it's absolutely true. Influenza is much harder on children than COVID is. But the vaccine, especially on boys, is much harder on the healthy children than even older adults. So there's a group of, of um, sort of like teenage boys, once they've entered puberty till about 40, that the risk is really quite high to me, unacceptably high for a population that has such a low risk from getting COVID. What kind of what kind of symptoms or what kind of clinical changes did you observe uh, with children? Did you have did you have patients who uh, and did you did you distinguish whether non uh, that uh, patients who got the shot and patients who didn't? Did you 
do you know or do you know colleagues who did this work who because i very often recognize that the many people are speaking about some damage the spikes could do and they don't distinguish whether this artificial artificial spikes whether the patient got the the jab or he didn't so do you know such such works or results where it is where it is distinguished whether there was there was a jab or there was not a jab and how do you and compare the the consequences of this yeah it's a very good question i think the probably the best data that gives us just in terms of myocarditis is um, from jama cardiology from the from the four nordic countries who looked at 23 million people who had received the jab and they also knew people who weren't vaccinated and all whether you had one or two or a mixture of the vaccines all of them were much higher risk of myocarditis than those who were unvaccinated um, so as much as they say that the disease is worse than being than the vaccine that's just not true from the data um, uh, the problem is is the data is also very dirty so they're not telling you if there's like for for instance in a lot of the in a lot of the, um, in a lot, uh, if they're, they call children unvaccinated if they only had one. So if, if they didn't have a full series, they might list them as unvaccinated. The problem is, is what if they got myocarditis after one jab? And then they're going to be lumped in the unvaccinated. So that's the problem when I look at papers right now. The data are very dirty. They're not clean. Um, and then you have the question of, did you have the jab first or after COVID? Did you have the two jabs, then COVID? Did you have COVID before the jab? Did you have COVID after the jab? And all of those things I think are very important. Right now, it's really hard for us. We can see whether people have um, native immunity if we look at the N antibodies, the nucleocapsid antibodies versus the spike protein antibodies. So that helps us to differentiate that. Um, but it's, it, it, I think it's an expression issue, also sex-related to probably testosterone, because it seems like the males who are most at risk are at the times when they're having the most testosterone in that age group. They're also probably, because of the testosterone, the people who push their bodies the most. We know that testosterone is an aggressive hormone. So it causes, uh, that's why you see young teenagers do stupid things, is because it puts them into this hyper-aggressive state, and that asks a lot more from their heart. So let's say their heart is mildly damaged from the spike, but if they're going to ask a lot more from their heart, like elite athletes do, then it probably brings up the issue of, of damage. My concern is if you look at the Thai data, is that when they looked at everybody prospectively right after their vaccine, um, one day and five days and seven days, what they found is that 2% um, of the boys had an elevation of troponin, which suggests cardiac damage. Uh, so, and then if you look at the data out of the CDC, if they look at everybody who had myocarditis and then look at 90 days later, half of those half of those patients that got a cardiac MRI still had findings that were um, um, uh, still had um, findings that were consistent with heart damage that is uh, late gadolinium enhancement on the on the uh, MRI uh, MRI so if you take the tie data and we're trying to and we're trying to put this together because no one has really done the really good study 
um, because cardiac MRI is very expensive to do. Um, and what they should have done many, many years ago, if we studied this correctly, we've looked at all this, but they haven't. So what, if we put the Thai data together with the CDC data for 90 days post-monocarditis, we might be looking at 1% of those, those boys and young males are at risk from having long-term damage to their heart that at 90 days is still there. And that the late gadolinium enhancement is an independent um, and probably the most, the strongest correlation with sudden cardiac death. So uh, I think that's what we're seeing. But you know, as we try, even if I try to ask a question, there are many doctors in the US that are afraid to get cardiac MRIs because they're afraid to say the reason is they think this child has post-vaccine myocarditis because then they'll be lumped in with the, oh, you believe though you're an anti-vaxxer. So it's that, that there's such pressure to go along with, with that this vaccine is safe and effective that it's hurting our ability to do post-vaccine studies, which has always been the hallmark of looking at vaccine injury. Um, maybe, maybe there is also a bias uh, recognizing what's going on when you use the ICD code the WHO made because when you when you see the ICD code I spoke about it last week when you see the ICD code there is an ICD code for side effects of the jab but it's not specified not at all it's just an ICD code for side effects of the jab but there is a big big uh, dis distinct uh, they distinguish much more the post-COVID uh, ICDs they make many ICDs for post-COVID, and you can get money for each ICD. Yeah. So the, the doctors they, who run after the money, they, they use the ICD. And if you only use one ICD, you will never find out what, what and when. And if you, cannot, you don't get the data. They hide the data behind this very stupid ICD side effects. And they try to, to spread out all possibilities post-COVID. And they're, this, they don't ask for, for whether someone has got the, the jab or not. You could, you could use all those post-COVID ICDs and use them with the, in combination with has got the jab or has not got the jab. This would, this would give some sense, but even that is not enough. We should have much more... Um, much more better classified uh, um, recognition of what might go on and we have to find out the reasons why people are damaged in such a big in such a big uh, scope yeah I, I agree i think one of the real problems right now is when they started vaccinating children at higher levels most of the children the cdc said had probably 85 percent already had COVID. so if you look at the post vaccine that these children weren't injured beforehand but after the vaccine, they got injured. But what a lot of people are saying is, well, that's post-COVID. Yes. No, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's ridiculous. They, had, they didn't have any symptoms after their natural disease. And now they have a vaccine. I, I mean, this, this is the problem is that is they fall back on, well, it's just post-COVID. That's nothing to do with yeah. the vaccine. Because they, they have this, they just re have a repeating statement. It's safe and effective. And we now know that it's not safe or effective. Um, uh, so it's 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 very difficult to try to look at it, even the retrospective data now, um, uh, for a number of reasons. One, it's so dirty. Two, there's so much pressure not to say there's a problem with the vaccine, um, and then also insurance companies not wanting to pay for it. Uh, so 
for without a big research protocol to be able to look at this and really do some now studies of people who've had harm, it's very hard for me as a pediatric cardiologist to assess a risk associated, let's say a child had the vaccine and had some symptoms afterwards, and they go, can you clear him for sports? And I say, well, I could if you got a cardiac MRI. Otherwise, it doesn't help because if you look at this, the, the, the data out of the Lancet in the um, adolescent Lancet section, um, they showed that after 90 days, the EKGs were normal, the stress tests were normal, the troponins were normal, all the things that echocardiograms were normal, all those things were normal. The only thing that was classically abnormal, which they went, hmm, I wonder why that is, was the cardiac MRI with late gadolinium enhancement. So it, it's... It, it, they're not helping us to try to figure out what's really going on. And because they're not helping us in terms of gathering data, it also is making it harder to try to, they're not, we don't have really good assays yet to see how much spike protein there is. There's a beautiful paper out of circulation out of Harvard that showed that they could correlate directly. If you had three spike protein in your plasma, that directly correlated with myocarditis. If you didn't, there was much less myocarditis. Well, that would be nice to have that assay out to look at and to be studying patients one to two weeks afterwards to see if they still have spike protein. Because then we can start looking at ways to treat the spike protein. But it's really hard right now just trying to get the, all the medical abilities to be able to help um, really treat these people. The other thing I'm seeing besides the myocarditis is the arrhythmias are, are profound. And it is strange. It's like a POT syndrome. Uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, but they don't have to be postural. They don't have to stand. They can just be sitting. And a lot of these people are completely incapacitated and can't work. Um, and I think that's probably relates to an atrial myocarditis that's affecting sinus node and other functions. We're not sure yet, but they, the, the um, autopsy studies, uh, if you look closely, there's quite a bit of atrial involvement, um, and, which is concerning. Uh, I know Ryan Cole and others have been starting to use um, antibodies to look for spike protein directly um, in cellular things, and it's and it's very very striking how much how much spike protein there is still sitting around on these cells, um, even within the heart. I think uh, that the endocarditis, which may we may uh, big in the right uh, atrium, may may make a lot of of damage with uh, with arrhythmia. And uh, you know that the young men was were strong young men who get the injection in the muscle and deltoid. There is it's much the risk is much higher that you get an intravasal in inter, in in the veins or so that it directly goes to the to the right atrium so that you have some damage there. So it's possible that this is an explanation for why young men so often when because they have strong muscles, more strong muscles than many girls. And, and sporty people have more uh, blood in their deltoid, so that the, the, the arrhythmia may, may be the result of such things too. Yeah, I think that's a, a worthy explanation as well. And um, you know, Anna, you know, Anna Bocart uh, with the pathologue, uh, he made a lots made lots of, of examinations. I hope we have him here soon again, and uh, he will. He has more and more findings that uh, the damage is all spread all over the body. You see it even in the skin. He has seen it in the skin, where the elastic fibers in the skin, they are damaged enormously uh, by those people who, who, are, who died because of some, some side effects of, the, of those uh, vaccines. And um, 
such such damage in the elastic fibers may also be uh, be the cause for for damages in the vein in in some arteria in the for instance in the in the big arteria where we have elastic fibers also i think it this is a very we have to have more uh, more biopsy uh, biopsies to to find out do you know whether it's still done is there still a practice that you take biopsies from the myocardium from the myocard or is it not no longer done um it's it's variable it's it's less likely because of our other abilities and i think also because of cardiac mri um people always very um uh, they, they preferred not to do biopsy a uh, inflamed heart. Um, yes. So, yeah, I think that, that, but I agree with you. That's one of the things we're missing most is autopsy findings or even biopsies of acute situations because it's very interesting what we're finding. It's not the classic sort of T cell myocarditis that we're used to with viral infections. It has mm -hmm. not only T cells, but it's B cells, but it also has uh, uh, um, uh, neutrophils and histiocytes and all these other things and it's mixed and it's patchy and it's so it would be nice to have more biopsies to see if we can sort of make some sense over what is um why there's different presentations and maybe does a does a um uh, does a neutrophil myocarditis act differently than a t-cell myocarditis um but it, it it's much different um than anything that we're sort of used to seeing um, but once again, we have a real paucity of information. There's also those findings about amyloid uh, um, de deposition in the in in the tissue, which may damage too. In some cases, they have this uh, wrongly folded proteins that make this amyloid uh, plaques, and uh, I think you 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 can see them also in in, in the myocard, but uh, I don't know exactly. But we will ask Arne Bokart when he when he will present his uh, his findings next week or over next week. He will be here. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Like, so you work with patients directly. You experience some problems with the heart, and then if you um, if you address, do you ever address that it might be connected to the vaccine? You ask, has the the child been vaccinated? And and what kind of um, reactions do you see, like on a psychological level? I mean, are people in denial, or um, do they address this also as a possibility? And maybe like with regards to the next vaccination round, would they be more, um, you know, careful not not go, uh, not to to take the vaccine next shot or something? Or what's the what's the the psychological pattern that you maybe observe? Largely, I see people are very suspicious of it now, especially because we're used to having, if I get a tetanus vaccine, we don't expect to get tetanus. Right? In most people's minds, if I got a tetanus vaccine, I don't worry about stepping on a rusty nail. Right? You know, I don't worry about getting polio. If I go to Africa and there's a polio outbreak. So that's what people's minds are. But they've told us that this was safe and effective, but everyone in the world who's been vaccinated, pretty much everybody has gotten COVID. Everyone. Right? With rare exception. It's a rare exception I find someone who hasn't had it. So the public is starting to go, wait, this isn't acting like other vaccines because, and I felt really horrible after this vaccine, like no vaccine I have ever had, I felt horrible. Um, and so when I tell them I'm concerned about this, I think they welcome it because the public senses something's not right. They sense it. And so the large majority of people that I talk to are going, yeah, and we're not getting any more. 
and we're not getting any more. I, I can see in my uh, electronic medical database, almost all of the children are coming in are not getting boosters. They're almost, they have the little red light on them. So pe people are, are, are they're they see that there's a problem. They maybe can't articulate all the problems, but they see there's a problem. Something doesn't seem right, especially with the mandates. You know what? I mean, yes. flu, <laughs> flu doesn't get mandated. So the, the public is seeing something, um, but they're told they're crazy. So most of the people who come in with arrhythmias, you know what the doctors are telling them? I think you're depressed. Wow. These are people who can't go to the gym anymore. These are athletes who can't go to the gym. Well, let me put you on some antidepressant medication. And, and they go, but I'm not depressed. I just can't work out anymore like I used to. I used to be on the elliptical, and I can't do any of those things. And so uh, the public is waking up. I think the question is, is when, the, when how soon will the doctors start being honest? Yes. And what That's kind right. of what kind of development do, do, do you see there? Are there more doctors who are maybe like behind closed doors speaking out to you or like what, what are your conversations with them? Absolutely. I was having a conversation last night um, uh, with, a, with a doctor and they're seeing it, but they're all afraid of their jobs. They're afraid to speak out because it's been very it's been very effective to take away people's licenses and take away their board certifications if you speak out against this and so it's frightened everybody what i've heard from a lot of people i'm one or two years from retirement i can retire i'm out i'm done and so some of the doctors who are the thinkers that see as a problem with this we're going to lose some of the best thinkers that think outside of what people tell you um, because they're done with this situation. So it's a lot of the doctors who are in their late 50s and early 60s. They'll go, I'm going to work one more year, and I'm done, and I'm out of here, which is going to be very sad. And what do you think? Um, I think you have a lot of experience with heart suffering. What is the perspective for the young people? Will they recover in total, or will they have get? Will they be suffering all the time, or will they die, maybe, for sure? Yeah, I, I, think, think? I think for the most part, I think for the most part, like I said, we're seeing it around 2% of that specific population. That's too high, but it's still 98% we're not seeing it, okay? Mm -hmm. Out of that 2%, 1% after 90 days, it looks like there's no more inflammation in the heart. So now we're down to 1%. <clears throat> I think 1%, we have to study them further. So I think for 99% of the people who got the vaccine, I can give them good news. There are a lot of people who've been talking about things, they talk foolishness, that they say, well, if you had myocarditis, it's a serious injury and 50% of your people are going to die and all this, that's just not true. And it's not true with COVID, cardiac inflammation or the vaccine inflammation, it's different. It has a different, it acts differently than our classic viral myocarditis. So I can give a lot of hope to people. What I'm really trying to do is figure out for that 1%, how can I assess the risk? And if there's any way I can change it, It's really hard once you have scar in the myocardium, you will, uh, and it's really dependent on how, what percentage of scar you have, but you're always at risk for arrhythmias once you have scar in the heart. Um, so th that's the, that's the, I, I want to give a lot of hope to the people that for the most part, you'll be okay. okay. But for vaccines, our complications to me should be one in a million, not one in a hundred. Mm. And when it's one in a a hundred instead of one in a million for a disease that doesn't cause problems, that vaccine needs to be removed. And now we're left with the problem of what do we do with that 1%.
how how young are the um, the children? I mean, in your practice, like how many how many really young children come with issues? No, not really young. Um, I'm not seeing that. It's usually it's not really picks up until around right around puberty. And, but do you have are there are there vaccinated children uh, that are much who are much much younger that you see in your practice? I mean, maybe not with with a lot of like in general, you know, like maybe they don't come for other reasons or have had like heart problems beforehand. But like, do you see? I mean, children who are maybe like five years, six years, whatever, eight years old, and who got vaccinated. Um, I've not seen a lot of that, but I think part part of it too is is they they don't have the language to describe how they're feeling at five to eight. So a lot of these are subtle findings. And remember, five and eight year olds will stop running. If they get tired or they hurt, a teenager won't because they want to win the game. So, so it's a different population. But I think if we look at all the studies, um, I think that um, those younger children, at least for the myocard myocarditis, it's not as we're not seeing it come to fruition. Now, to me, should they be studied? Yes, we should have studied these patients. We should have studied these patients with with troponins, serial troponins after a vaccine. Um, but it wasn't done. Um, and this was after they knew that myocarditis was a real issue. Well, yeah. So, but I, but I, you know, I just look at one part. I'm just looking at myocarditis. There are many other issues that are, that are be, to be concerned about this vaccine for kids. I'm just looking at this one part. And so I get a selective picture that's really specifically for myocarditis and heart issues and arrhythmias. Have you heard anything about aneurysma, about the defects in the aorta or something like that in young people? Yeah, I'm, I, I've heard some. My concern is, is I think that, and, and I don't know this, I'm just trying to, you know, bring about a sort of hypothesis. I think the vasculitis that is happening might be actually affecting the aorta in such a way it's almost like a complex regional pain syndrome. And I think that might be explaining the pain that they have when the lungs look normal and the heart looks normal, but they have yeah. this certain pain that it seems like it's complex regional pain syndrome. So I'm wondering if the endotheliolitis had gotten to the point with the sympathetic nervous system associated with the vascular, that this vasculitis now, this central vasculitis of the large vessels is now developed into a complex regional pain syndrome. Um, But I, it's sort of like my, I'm trying to, because they get these strange symptoms where it's really burning hot going to their back. You almost worry they have an aortic dissection, um, but that's probably not what it is. Is it so, possible, uh, with, with, do you get pictures of the wall of the aorta that are so exact that you would find aisles of destruction in, in the tissue of the aorta? Is it possible? If you could get that tissue, yes. Hmm. Yeah, because it's not just the endothelial cells, it's the pericytes, it, 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 it gets it all. No, I mean, during lifetime, is it possible to, to analyze the, the tissue of the aorta so exactly with some method, radiographic method, or with some, is there a method that you can see the structure of the wall of the aorta so in such a high, um, how do you call it, exactly that you could find aisles of destruction within the walls? 
Um, what we can do is we can do vascular ultrasounds. That's probably our clearest right now. And then we can look with vascular ultrasounds to see how it responds to nitric oxide to see if the vessel is acting properly. We can wow. do that with, with Kawasaki's disease that have a true vasculitis of the, mm. of the vessels. So, but nothing that, that gives us that beautiful picture like when I was doing my research where I would have a, the vessel and then all these white cells lined up on top of the vessel. Um, so, but that really requires really biopsy, excuse me, biopsy, or it requires um, autopsy. Yeah, okay, that's not possible. Yes, we can't wait. We can't wait until that happens. Yeah, really, yeah. guys. I I'm very sorry, but I have to. I have a patient waiting in the OR. Um, I I'm sorry to cut this short. I really no, apologize, but. It's amazing that you were able to talk to us um, about this for such a long time. Thank you. I know you're under time pressure. Thanks so much. I think these are very valuable insights, and it's very important that we that some proper research starts in that field, you know, to help these people. And I think it's great that yeah. you are doing that. You're so awakened to doing this this job for to care for your pa patients. That's really great. Thank you. Thank you. I hope Thank I get you. to see everybody. And I'm going to Brussels this weekend, so I'll be at the. Uh, the, the summit in Brussels on the 2nd through the 4th. So I hope to get to see people there. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank, you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, really a lot is becoming true of what we really suspected and um, there were so many aspects that could have been foreseen if you know the trial situation and uh, the sad truth is that it's often not realized. Yes, and it's uh, really the variety of findings that leads to this lack of clarity because if you want medical trials that are telling concerning the causes you also need like comparative data and so on but you know public funds are not invested in such projects it is only the post-covid trials they're being funded but they are not talking about uh, the damage caused by vaccinations and this is where the funds should go and actually these uh, shots have to be stopped in the first place. They should be banned. There is such a lot of information that basically would have led to the fact that this type of shots would have been taken from the market. And children, he also mentioned it, they were not um, it's, uh, the main, they should not have been uh, a target group. Uh, you know, pediatricians in Germany said that there were no severe cases and there were only isolated cases with um, children with um, previous conditions. And the fact that so many children and young people got this vaccination with an experimental substance and this needs to be stopped right away. It is, there should not be any question about that. It has to be stopped immediately. And all this and all these uh, posterior research projects, the damage caused by vaccinations, it's also a question, you know, about damages to be paid. And everybody who is part of this, uh, they're afraid. It's nearly all of them. And they're afraid of, you know, having, uh, 
you know, to pay because they were part of the system, and it would be very difficult to find out. And uh, the people in Scandinavia, you know, they had epilepsy, and they looked into that um, with um, flu cases and. Um, they found out a lot more. Uh, that means um, the pharmacovigilance system is a lot better, you know, and this became obvious during the swine flu. And, you know, pharmacovigilance at the Paul Ehrlich Institute, we cannot expect too much of them because uh, they became part of the system, you know, and uh, you could only sack every member at the Paul Ehrlich Institute and, you know, have a completely new composition of people. Otherwise, it won't work. You know, the um, Paul Ehrlich Institute is uh, really, you know, the um, an instrument uh, of the government, and then you need to get rid of Lauterbach as well. Well, long COVID, post-COVID syndromes, well, if this should become, or if this was um, a condition with phenomenons uh, that could occur after a COVID-19 infection, but also after um, influenza, and is so I have two questions in this connection. First of all, is it a manifest uh, syndrome um, from the time where no vaccine was no, not available uh, in 2020? This could not have been become manifest in that connection. And now we want to learn for what uh, is uh, coming in the future. So would that be a possibility of resorting to these insights or to generate you know some kind of instructions for the future well we just heard it from a pediatric cardiologist you know there were myocarditis uh, cases after infections it exists so children that um, had uh, a virus infection, and then it is also the heart muscle that reacts. So there are lymphocytes in the heart muscles. There was a typical finding that he recognized from the past, but with the cases that uh, occurred now are different. And uh, in terms of epidemiology, um, one could also look into myocarditis after a virus infection leading to clinical symptoms, you know, um, shocks with the parents, you know, parents actually go and see the doctor. So such cases have been described and this should have led to a rise during the period where allegedly COVID threatened us and when no vaccine was available, as you rightly put, because it was only at the end of 2020, beginning of 21, that it all started, but uh, with the vaccines for children were introduced only a year later. So one may have seen um, post-COVID syndromes in children who had never received a shot, but actually this was never the case. 
but what was triggered by those vaccines and this in parallel we saw this um, you know diagnoses for emergency hospitalization in parallel um, to the vaccination in the population it was um, emergency hospitalizations in connection with heart conditions and neurological conditions so in parallel this uh, graph was rising so um, it was uh, the CNS and the heart that uh, where you know damage can hardly be hidden and where clinical symptoms become very manifest and you would really need some alternative explanation in the first place. So when the population had received their shots, what other reasons uh, could have led to the fact that emergency uh, hospitalizations in the CNS, in the brain, in the heart uh, occurred? So uh, no attempt has even been made to find a different explanation. Yes, uh, there is this video clip, uh, you know, like coincidences. We have another coincidence here, but it is not conceivable there is such a mass of uh, people that uh, developed similar symptoms and the only parameter that changed uh, over all previous years is uh, that an untested substance has been used as a vaccine. I don't know if our next guest has joined us already and at the beginning of uh, the talk with our previous uh, guest, uh, there was talk about cascades, and this was relating to COVID infections. I don't know whether you said that. My impression was that he was talking about different symptoms that were happening on top of each other. Did you uh, fully understand what he was talking about? And then uh, what about the insights concerning this condition. Maybe Wolfgang would like to answer that. Well, uh, cascades, um, the, you know, if one thing is changed, a second symptom can be triggered and this can lead to yet another symptom. This is a cascade and it occurs, for example, if cells are attacked and um, the debris of these cells cause yet something else and then there are secondary and tertiary actions in the immune system so if an infection has happened and then an antigen is added that is similar due to the vaccination this can lead to different alarms in the immune system of uh, cellular uh, character for example there are signal paths and uh, there are also like messenger substances, uh, there's the cytogen storm that everybody um, fears. Cytokines are, you know, um, part of the immune system and uh, this has a cascade character. This leads to uh, secondary and tertiary alarms. Like if you hear a window being smashed, then the police uh, comes and the police says, oh, there is a fire on top and then the fire brigades are arriving and this is a cascade. Does that relate to COVID or the shots? Well, the uh, consequences of the shot. I would uh, need to ask it, but um, I think uh, this is what he was talking about. 
Okay, now you will. You also talked about the cytokine storm, and this was his biggest concern. And then myocarditis was not so much of an issue, but actually we haven't seen that, or did I just notice? Not notice. Yes, this could still happen because this was the late symptoms that were seen in animal experiments, animal testing, and you know where the immune system had already been alerted by this kind of vaccination and when the true virus came, um, the test animals died. This happened with the vaccine testing after the first SARS episode. So there were animal tests that showed this and I'm not aware of any masses of people um, having died of severe secondary consequences, but we have such a colorful picture of side effects that cannot be explained by a singular immune mechanism. And we also have this, uh, you know, this French team, Montignier, where they causes uh, of uh, secondary diseases that this was wrongly folded proteins that led to damage and also fast death, which is not the case with Kreuzfeld-Jacobs. But this technology, this RNA technology, and uh, this is also uh, written um, in previous works uh, that one does not master this so that proteins get folded the wrong way. So this is an effect that uh, is triggered by something because uh, two things are suddenly coinciding and it does not happen in every person. So uh, there is such a lack of clarity that I should say that many factors have to be observed and looked into and uh, if they occur in combination they can lead to damage and then also this totally unclear composition of things um, so uh, the fact that uh, so many people died simultaneously, well, uh, it was noticed and they avoided that and they tried uh, to um, add other things into nanoparticles that they want to try out. I don't know because we don't know what is contained in the shots, but if plasmides have been found with DNA and with uh, colibacteria genes, there were these antibiotics and uh, these resistances, they were coded in the plasmides, then everything is uh, conceivable and uh, this cause-effect principle, in order to find this out, it is very difficult to find because there are so many possible causes and as many effects can occur or even more in combination. It will be difficult and uh, what's uh, really difficult, we are really chasing a crime and they are coming up with new things all the time and we are trying to find the one explanation which is difficult. Well, <coughs> I think it's quite crazy if we look at all of this, looking at the gene manipulation, transhumanism and everything that's being presented to us. 
prior to a crisis, I never looked at this in detail, but it always sounded a bit like improvement, faster running, and so on, whatever they had. And now it seems to be the case that the only thing that we have is a complete weakening um, with many, many aspects. And um, it's difficult, seemingly, to get them out of the population again. Um, the load this is going to be, if, as Benabakot said, three million people that have to fight serious problems, that means a loss of quality of life and a load for the society that has to take care for all of these people. And it's incredible, really. Yes, if you want to improve humans, you have to invest a lot of time. And uh, nature has changed humans all the time. And us, the people who live in this civilized environment, probably are completely different with completely different capabilities than the people who lived in clans and the caves and forests. So in the um, interaction with our environment has coined us and made us survive. And this takes centuries or millenniums. Our body can learn this. And there is, of course, victims. If the body has to learn this, there are some bodies who don't. And there's evolutionary benefits for certain uh, capabilities and setbacks for others, which led us to be what we are. And I don't want to um, judge us here. We are the result of an evolutionary process. And if somebody thinks they can do this without the necessary feedback in the environment, if you change something, it does have an effect on the environment. And that is a correlation, really, the change and what you see in the individual being. And uh, you have to do this for many, many generations. It's like for breeding animals, for example. And the consequence is they get they get um, uh, new litters every every year and so on. So um, the development is much faster. But in humans, the observer will be dead before the change is seeable. So I think this is uh, a madness project. And who uh, dares to say uh, uh, they know how to make a better human? Do we want to, for example, breed politicians who don't repeat what they did? I mean, who is to do that? Who is allowed to breed whom? That's the question. Just think about human dignity. There was something about there, wasn't it? Wasn't that part of the basic law? Well, anyway, I think this is something that is so absurd. And uh, writing things this, like this in a book, uh, you've got to be completely stupid. Well, surely it's not the task of people making others better. And of course, the question would be to define of what is better and what is not. And uh, what you can do is you can kill people you don't want to have. And you can paralyze capabilities you don't want to have. You can use drugs to partially paralyze people, deform them. And with these injections, you can surely uh, jab certain capabilities and strengths that you don't want to have. You can reduce. That's what you can do. Just like in punishing, 
you can suppress certain behavior in children and delete it even so they won't do it again. But by punishing, you won't be able to teach children anything. And that applies to adults as well. So if you want to get people to learn something new, to improve, it's not possible that way. But if you want to damage them, to prevent them from being able to do certain things, that's possible. So if there are idiots that want soldiers without consciousness and they damage something in the brain, it can be the case that they just run forward like machines and kill everything that's in front of them. But that is a crime that we can't accept. And if somebody comes along and says, we have something, we can do gain of function with humans, well, I'm sorry, that is something we can't tolerate. Well, you talked about the crime and the act that we are chasing. The problem is that we don't really know what the criminal intention is behind all of this. It's very speculative and uh, well <clears throat> you have to decide whether you want to go to jail or to the madhouse uh, that's the model um, maybe uh, the the mailhouse is uh, better in jail at least you have laws and you can judge whether people are there for uh, proper reasons or not and um, well projecting this to the other side you should wonder whether they should go to jail or rather go to a closed institution I would rather think uh, that's the case because I don't just see financial and power interests here but I do also see a kind of uh, Frankenstein magicians course um, and uh, with the opportunity to uh, get richness and power but apart from that they're completely unleashed and uh, so for me this is just sheer madness well as these mad people can only get so damaging because they have so much money money one could simply um, take the money off them and then they can't cause as much damage um, they should that is something if the majority wanted to do that that would be quite easy to do really well just to put this in place not everybody who played along maybe for financial pressure or uh, the consolation they were given in <clears throat> that they may agree to today or not they shouldn't all go to the madhouse but um, uh, I think uh, that is something um, the people who pulled the threads in the background and uh, for example when we heard that we had to assume that Ugo Sahin really know or had to know what this uh, stuff does in the body in the constitution of the substance uh, then you should uh, wonder about the mental state of a person doing this kind of thing well he is uh, golden framed in the focus title page uh, absolute madness well the golden calf let's see what's going to happen to it um, and they live the the address is that the gold mine <laughs> well but not for coincidence a coincidence we have our next um, guest with us our um, attorney colleague Tobias Ulbricht can you see and hear us yes I can and I'm happy to be back I thank you for the invitation 
Yes, we heard that you're very active in filing cases and helping people who have had harm from the damage from the vaccination against uh, Pfizer and others. And your activities have become part of a TV report which was radioed yesterday. And it's interesting to see how this came about and the consequences from it. So maybe you would just briefly like to report your legal proceedings at the moment. Well, at the, this moment, we have about 4,000 inquiries and the uh, free of charge initial um, talks. We've had this just to make sure everybody who uh, contacts us has been provided with information. And due to the high demand, we can already see how little the public does and those who should do this publicly and often that information is not of a legal nature it's just people who are completely helpless in this situation after at least they think that uh, they have had a health damage after the vaccination and nobody wants to admit to that and the ignorance is quite widespread Amongst the doctors, disinformation is also very strong with respect of what we really need. And um, at least the courts tell us that we're talking about the application of paragraph 484 of the Medical Act in Germany. And here the myth is that we have to prove that this is a damage as a consequence of the vaccination. That is not quite true. The burden of proof is lifted in another paragraph uh, saying that the law assumes that the damage is based or due to the vaccine. And so there has to be a little coincidence only between the vaccination and the damage. And uh, we have patients who have not had any uh, damage, any harm before the vaccination, and now they have it. And we have similar cases in the RKRI and the and the PI, which seem to suggest that this is not individual cases. We have a big number of peer-reviewed essays and articles on this and concrete diagnoses. And to be clear, in the diagnosis, I don't need doctors telling me that there is a correlation between the, um, uh, the diagnosis and the vaccine. Um, that's done by the law. I just have to have a good description of the uh, picture. So if a doctor says he sees a uh, connection, um, then it's okay. Uh, but if you have a traffic accident and you have a broken arm, he wrote that, he writes that, and uh, he doesn't say this is because of the uh, accident. So this is what we have to see. We don't have to have to prove the correlation between the vaccination and the harm. Um, that's what we have. And then we have the three big areas of the other side. The first area being that 
uh, finding replacement causes, paragraph uh, 83, um, that is triggered elsewhere. It could also be due to this or that or the other. That is uh, um, given by experts and then we see whether the legal stipulation of the responsibility is levered by that or not. And there's two more areas, which is also in the same paragraph, where we have the risk-benefit analysis and Bishop saying that due to medical uh, research, there is a benefit opposed to the individual case and um, then there is no compensation and secondly we have the full information and I have to say we see we don't see the replacement causality and also not um, they are all uh, faulty and I think the problems not uh, the judges are not going to have problems in this that the this is not fulfilled and the other thing that we've been seen in the press is only the topic that these are individual cases which are uh, held up against the back background of computer models that is what's being gone in going on in the last uh, couple of weeks um, next week we have three major uh, hearings uh, which have been postponed to November now uh, because the extent of what we are writing is extensive and uh, needs more time uh, the other side needs more time to um, react to this uh, this was the case in Frankfurt and in Frankenthal as well that's the situation we have and this is why the um, playfield has shifted from the courtroom to the media so all media are working in the same region it is by now allowed to describe it's always a, a patient facing an expert whether that be Mr. Watzel or other experts always say well sorry there is no vaccine damages they are so rare and the overwhelming benefit is um, justifiable and so it's only the um, individual fate against the computer model I felt I stood up against this saying that on Twitter and in OTS press portal contributions and also now in the TikTok videos I explained that it makes a sense to compare computer models with computer models so I can't have a computer model on one side then I have to have it on the other side as well that means I uh, if for example I have 404,000 severe cases of um, side effects in September um, uh, for biontech vaccines and I have a Harvard study um, with uh, 87 to 99 percent uh, coverage and a European coverage was uh, uh, under reporting of 94 percent then I would have to look for the best uh, example 
so that's 99%, and then I would have 40 million uh, side effects in Europe and 15%, um, 6 million in Germany. And then that would have to be, you can do that with uh, fatal cases and with the other reports. And two uh, suppositions are wrong in this. One is that the suspicion is actually the found case and that the underreporting actually happens. And the other side doesn't do that differently. Uh, there's the relative and the actual effectiveness and uh, the ones who died with and uh, because of corona and COVID, and uh, so that distorts the picture. So if you look at reality, things get critical all of a sudden. Um, uh, certainly, uh, they say that a million deaths have been saved, and then we have to look at the excess mortality. In 2020, we had no excess mortality at all. And 2021, we had sustainable uh, excess mortality and even more in 22. So if you look at this logically, if one million of deaths um, have been saved, then um, they should have accounted be, been saved in 2022, or at least they should be shared out out of the um, three years, there should have been an excess mortality of 333,000, otherwise you couldn't get to that figure. So as soon as you kind of start thinking about this, you could get to the conclusion that it is strange to um, have the Empress, Empress New Clothes here presenting an empty shell. Um, so that is stipulated in the Medical Act. And this is the game that's being played here. The media are the core drivers of the judges um, <clears throat> being confronted with a media landscape which actually doesn't cover what they see in their court cases. So, and um, which judge has a big pleasure in presenting rulings like that. Nobody does. That's going to be difficult. Nobody wants to be the first, so either they turn it down, then they have all the hurt people um, who are un unhappy, or I have the media landscape, including the pharma industry against me as a judge. So it's a difficult choice, choice to make. So I suggest come back to the JJ to the basics, apply the law as it is, and uh, take it through as a mathematical exercise, so to say. That is the approach one should take. And um, there's quite a, a number of media contacting us. The big uh, German media came up. Um, there was and programs broadcast in public radio and TV now uh, with the updates and uh, quite something visible um, that may lead to some questions and beyond that I can tell and only thank most journalists that they had the courage to take up on that topic to look into the facts and um, now with um, the 
proceedings that are uh, at the courts. They just got access to the literature and uh, did their work as good as they could have done. And then there is one exception, and that is uh, one point I'd like to illustrate now, which was last Thursday, um, the RBB uh, a radio station approached me. Um, uh, Madame Banal came up to me, said she wanted to make a contribution on the lawsuits of the side effects and possibly accompany somebody through their process. So quite a normal setting to start with where we were not suspicious at all. We know her show and um, we did work with them with that radio program before so we thought it was all okay no reason for suspicion on our side it was all okay and she said she couldn't come herself um, the uh, she had to follow the last generation in berlin and a colleague would come along that was marcus paul and he came with two camera people and uh, then uh, we did the shots and when we had everything uh, set up and we started with the interview it was clear that this is not about the um, um, uh, court cases but this is about my personal defamation and the course was that um, um, they took up on the uh, lawsuits I filed tweets that I had uh, that had been deleted asking questions on my internet webpage now minus democracy.de which of course wasn't broadcast and so on so loads of things like that um, so I think this is um, pretending um, wrong things to get an interview uh, saying that they wanted to have a positive report and then say no we're not going to do that we're just going to do defamation and uh, we um, asked uh, Marcus Paul what this is all about and what he wanted to do and uh, uh, he said quite clearly you're not going to directly afterwards he said that he had the order to do a defamation program about me and of course he uh, said yes i did show um, that um, there were some findings and knowledge of course you know about this but uh, quite clearly that was clear and then the next point came up um, my client oliver janke was also asked to give an interview and he had the same weird setting. It was not all about him, about his health condition. It started with a party that he was a member of and whether how he would, what he would think about the federal parliament's decision that there is no um, investigative committee that the AFD, the uh, political party, uh, asked for and how happy he was about uh, me as a, a lawyer and of course he was all happy um, he said uh, I did a great job and so on uh, so that didn't work out but it was the same tendency and um, 
And of course, the result is clear. We addressed the press consultant. We wrote to the management of the radio station. And um, we called the, on the council. And they all said, well, you, we can't do anything before it has been broadcast. So um, uh, the codex and uh, um, the contractual uh, trespassers have to be waited for before you can take any action, before it was clear the intention. So one thing is good as a result here. We are being taken seriously. If we weren't to be taken seriously, this campaign journalism wouldn't have been necessary. And uh, then um, it wouldn't be any, wouldn't make any different what any lawyer does with a couple of people who have side effects. Um, so this shows that we are taken seriously, and this is why they are producing this. We have uh, published a press. Um, the release on this, you can find this on the portal as well. I can show it here as well. A, a Germany um, law and Noah, well known uh, lawyer in Germany, sees a campaign journalism, uh, <clears throat> and this is again what I've just said in the wordings of a press release. So that's quite something that they let themselves down to this kind of game they're playing. I think um, that is much more of a trap. I had the same experience with the same uh, radio station when we started our party de basis when they wrote that um, I was called the hat maker Rike Feierstein is in the uh, generating herself as uh, an, a lawyer. Of course, I complained and they um, uh, <clears throat> they uh, apologized uh, because I am a lawyer and uh, so it shows the way they work and now they are even um, staging this and um, that shows that there is pressure in the kettle otherwise uh, you could just let things go by it doesn't make any difference but, but I think they do note that there is things on the move and people are getting unhappy and this kind of thing has to be stopped because otherwise the dram may break and then they come up with this kind of story and this kind of action <coughs> yeah Quite right, quite right. Um, it is a, uh, a lunatic home, a lunatic piece, really. Once you read through the press code, um, there is uh, nothing that they have skipped uh, and which they violated. So objectivity and balanced reporting would mean, okay, let's look um, the uh, lawyer of the other side or... <coughs> maybe Pfizer, let's look at what they are doing, let's see how many fines and how many complaints they have lost, that's nearly 10 billion US dollars, 27 <coughs> cases that they have lost due to false declaration, corruption, loads of things which actually play a role in this space, or could do at least so, and uh, the praise <coughs> that BioNTech and Pfizer as sales partners get 
are gigantic from my point of view. If we look at the history and uh, their track record of uh, trespassing the law, are completely unjustified. So I would say if um, you do the same fraud 20, 30 times, maybe one should get careful at times, um, looking whether the things that are being done there are sound and proper or not. Of course, this wasn't done in this piece, and in the example, there's lots of uh, things that have been cut out. So framing only works if you combine questions with different answers that happened and uh, we had the consolation that it was not understand uh, what a, a lawsuit is. I explained this three times. A, a public lawsuit is, <clears throat> first of all, a suspicion that we have. Um, so this is not a fact that is a state uh, and that uh, needs to be checked by the prosecution. That is what a criminal charge is. And um, he said, that's your idea. And I said, no, it's not. This is just a list of suspicious points. And the prosecution said, we don't have this. So this is what we have. And he said, I don't believe that. This conversation, of course, wasn't included in the part, just like uh, many other parts of the conversation did not. The technique in framing and the long-term in long interview and something that you have to look out for, you will um, ask for an hour or two hours um, putting questions which are uncomfortable from your point of view because you know that somebody who has this interview situation can maybe concentrate 10, 20, 30 minutes and then <clears throat> all you do is uh, try to get your sentences straight and um, you just uh, get the things that are needed to frame you. And of course, it's not interrupted. Uh, the water glass is not there so that you have the situation pictures that, uh, that now you have to grab your water. So the whole setting is set up in the way. Um, and then we have uh, gone through all of this. Um, I can quite clearly say that um, it didn't make any harm to my uh, law firm. Uh, we still have lots of inquiries. I'm very happy to get a lot of support from my clients and I thank everybody for that. Well, also from our side, thank you very much. And I think it is a great thing that you are so intense in your deliberations. And, well, you have a specific view and um, you have a disillusioned view on the legal system and um, I feel the same. It's like, you know, throwing pearls before the swine, I often thought, but then actually um, you um, brought court action um, to this and um, 
I think now there's court proceedings that are imminent, and um, has there been a court hearing, or was it only in writing? No, it is a um, preliminary procedure. It is a written procedure, and due to the uh, scope of uh, documentation, it uh, takes time and we um, do everything possible within the scope of an approval procedure and we also work on the topic of um, being effective, whether the vaccine is effective and uh, we also work on the approval of the vaccine and this is a topic that we are having under review, and it is important for us that a scientific review takes place, and uh, this is the goal of uh, our exercise. One would have to discontinue if there was any indication of uh, side effects. And thus, uh, you must not continue. And it has become obvious that this really were serious and um, potentially harmful drugs. And this is a legal opinion. And the courts will have to deal with them. And we may have to also hand in some um, expert literature, maybe in the translated form, and maybe ask for an expert opinion. Yes, uh, usually, you know, this is uh, what the official proceedings ask for. And um, this does not only apply to the COVID-19 problem, but for the legal system in general, that decisions are often based on a gut feeling of the judges, and then they try to find some legal basis for it, basis in um, inverted commas, really. And for that reason, the media landscape will act accordingly. And um, well, they will try to influence the media as well, as we have seen in the past three years. And what may have a role to play is the following, and uh, is it, well, a lot is now being negotiated at the district court, but um, often there is a chamber with three people, but often it is a single judge who may decide you can retransfer the case or nothing uh, would be transferred to individual uh, judges. How about you? Is it three or one person? Well, usually there is a retransfer, first of all, due to uh, the complexity of the legal affair and also uh, of the facts and thus the conditional or even unconditional approval of the um, case is um, also under question and otherwise 
the case may even go to Brussels, and this will be considered only if the drugs law is deemed not to apply and if other types of law apply. For example, the law on genetic engineering. And we are lawyers, and we represent the interests of the parties, and we ask for every information available, and the court is to find the truth. And it is mainly on the fact that we try to find information, but it is um, a custom that one comments on the legal situation and uh, you justify why you put forward your line of reasoning. I do hope that judges will enjoy that, uh, mathematics, logics, and uh, the fulfillment of a certain um, characteristics. It's kind of uh, a mathematical exercise and then you need a plausible line of reasoning and then you come to a conclusion. I do hope that the one or the other judge will still enjoy practicing their profession and apply the principles. We needed a year to comply the documentation. We started off, uh, you know, for example, um, concerning guarantee cases, it took us one year to compile the relevant documentation, and there was also a court that sat down and said we need to apply the law. And um, then this was because of intentful harm of the population, and this was mentioned in the um, line of reasoning as well, and that's also in our case. I'm sure that there will be judges who will find the truth. Well, I think it is a great thing that you are working on this topic, and it's certainly good if three full-time judges will um, deal with that, so maybe there will be a more balanced court ruling. Last time you were here, you reported that uh, you did not see the doctors as opponents, but that you wanted to attack them on yet a different level. Yes, we actually uh, defined the manufacturers as um, opponents, and they are the ones who may potentially have to pay out damages. Yes, and let's see how the um, manufacturers will behave. They may, of course, um, evade their responsibility by fleeing to other countries or insolvency proceedings. And actually, we have to see what is going to happen and maybe expansion um, of the case. And um, this uh, an expansion to joint and several debtors is still conceivable. 
Yes, um, when it comes to the clarification, you enumerated something. I don't know whether this would have a role to play, but um, the modeling question, I think, towards the individual fates is uh, a question. And has there been um, an announcement that they would want to move abroad? No, there is no connection or explanation, but I don't know whether it was a biotech company, whether it was a parent company. So um, an affiliate company, that's usually not possible. So if they went to England, they would no longer have the approval. So basically, uh, one thing has to happen so that the second thing will happen. I don't know. We will see how they will position themselves. And the Federal Republic of Germany has a role to play here as well. And they would have a major role to play if they wanted to re-examine the contract and uh, Article 176, uh, you know, when it comes to holiday on in the case of um, intent. And well, actually, this uh, appears not nice for the person suffering the damage. So a party where you save um, costs in terms of the lawyer. And I agree that this would be um, an unfair spreading of risks. And uh, this would really lead to an imbalance which uh, is not acceptable. Well, and the question really is whether one shouldn't be able to resort to acting persons or if there was a change in opinion, this may happen, and then they will also see claims from other countries, and that's obvious in Italy. I mean, this is not... Um, that the German complainants should move to Italy, but anyways, uh, there will be a movement, and we have just a disclosure in Italy, uh, the disclosure of uh, the public prosecutor's documents and so on, and one, uh, you know, amputation um, a victim after getting the shot, you know, uh, he said that uh, there was movement. Now the judges are asking more questions, they prove more, and the government is still trying to uphold the campaign. And once there is a paradigm shift in the courtrooms, everything, you know, constant dripping carved the stone. This is what I like to say, and I really like them to stay tuned. Yes, um, we know the problem, and maybe the first court of rulings where no limitations have yet occurred. Uh, this is not yet the end. So for the one or the other side, there may also be a, um, a second um, round and one may to um, protest and uh, thus and um, if there are appeal proceedings, and if you see the um, 
vaccination damages, you know, the limitations may occur even in 2022 and in other cases uh, that suffered damage in 2021 and 2024. So um, time really flies and uh, this uh, game they are playing on time and limitation and uh, extension applications and the scheduling is a game that always works uh, for the other side the same with exhaust gas and you know the, those who wanted to uh, go to court uh, they were told like oh this has come under the statute of limitations so this is the typical game everybody should know that um, the limitations are imminent and at some point one should really resort to limitation um, measures well I <laughs> do not know um, private law that much I am more deal with public law but um, with intentful harm I think 30 years are the limitation period isn't that true but this is not the case here no because first of all you uh, just uh, want um, the um, a different type of complaint. It is um, the liability, the absolute liability, and there are different bases, like, um, and they may end up in some limitation periods, and there are situations where, like, under the Drugs Act, um, I do not see this for the time being. Well, and um, the basis for our claims will be made uh, thinner, I'm quite sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay, last week, um, maybe it was a wrong piece of news, but anyways, I had read that the German state, in case uh, some kind of liability may occur for um, vaccination damage, they would be liable also on a worldwide scale due to the fact that the manufacturer of this uh, substance is in Germany. I think it didn't arise from the legal basis that was uh, quoted, but uh, according to Article 64 or something, yes, well, I do not understand this legal opinion because, first of all, under private law, it is uh, those who are eligible. That means the manufacturers and potentially also the doctors and in a subsidiary manner, um, the state. So the order why the state should be liable all the time, why they explain it that way, I don't know. And uh, Mr. Lauterbach uh, extracted that from the tweet like um, the state will be held liable <laughs> because there was another uh, tweet saying oh can you tell us a shortcut so he removed that tweet altogether it is a really a sorry fact that their contract was
made out as it was. It would have been more elegant to ask who was a representative at the contractual negotiations. Was it Christopher Rice or Mona Fitzbush, Mr. Drosten? Who was part of that? Because uh, apparently so many were present. And for that reason, it makes sense to see who is negotiating. Is it the pharmaceutical industry um, dealing you know, with representatives of that industry? Are they dealing with themselves or with each other? So this gives rise to a whole series of questions whether this shouldn't become a separate event anyways. Um, when um, looking at the formulation of texts, um, it looks a bit strange. And uh, it looks as if somebody was looking for how much they could get out for themselves in maximum. And um, with a functioning journalism, one would ask such questions. And one might have been wondering, like, what information is available at the Paul Ehrlich Institute. And then there are also the um, medical information sheets. And then you can make a comparison, like uh, the safety update report. And this is the point of time of doctoral information. What type of information should have been entered here for the doctors, not the patients, so that the doctors know what we have to say in terms of risk education. I think she formulated the answers very well. And she said the project source for the risk assessment was the Paul Ehrlich um, Institute. And they have resorted to all approval documents. And thus, they can talk about risk signals or anything else. And the question really is, uh, did the government and the health ministry have the information from that procedure and also the risk, for example, the safety update report. This is a very obvious question and um, we got very interesting answers and whether the risk um, liability had been um, compromised and the answer was no because it's about the manufacturing and uh, development of the so-called Spahn ruling. Um, no declaration of content and no retention models and so on. If um, and that was their own explanation. The uh, change would be applicable from within their own department. And uh, actually, concerning the knowledge with MTEC Pfizer, when they came up with canonical update safety reports, and also based on what is present, the knowledge of the individual health damages um, has been published. So the level of information is clear. And there are two elements. The um, knowledge is um, we 
cannot even come up with the problem of guilt. If we saw this as a necessary component, well, and there are also guarantees of uh, non-changeability, so they cannot be changed, and this already excludes on, you know, has to be led all the time, a discussion revolving around the emperor's beard, as we like to say. I think the true problems happen elsewhere, but not in that segment. It is a sorry fact that um, the TV contracts as of the 31st of December 2023, this gives rise to extreme questions why it all had to be done all over again. And thus, uh, this is my update from that area and uh, this for, well, good common reasons. Thank you very much for this interesting presentation and I think you should continue along these lines and um, don't bite the hand that is feeding you. Thank you very much and let's stay tuned. And should there be anything new, we will be happy to invite you again. It's really interesting to see what kind of external control mechanisms if they can no longer monitor what is happening and then it gets really difficult looking at the institution that should exist for our protection. There seems to be a mixing of interests with other institutions and, well, there is little room for correction. One um, lever may be that, you know, it is said that public power emanates from the people. Well, then the entire thing would look different, for example. If there was a possibility of getting rid of somebody, then um, there is a certain point of time where people can be found who say we do not like what is going on here. And um, others thought everything there, but others had seen the whole truth, really. And then the question is what you can do in order to get this type of positive feedback and where you can utter constructive uh, criticism. And in all this um, medium environment, so many of us um, complained about measures. I would now like to come back to the topic of elections and um, maybe from the other side, and we may also agree, disagree on our opinion. So the next uh, guest is Volker Grave. He's a writer, and he has dealt with this topic in detail. What does it all mean, and um, what are the possibilities and pitfalls? Yes, uh, thank you. Happy to have me here. Uh, that you have me here, and um, I wanted to address this topic when, since I heard that uh, elections are something bad. However, before I want to put out a, a, a void, how dare you moment. Viviana and I have been acquainted for a while um, with uh, Wolfgang we are in the same party and um, yes so um, 
and just to clear this, clarify this, and if we see that the non-voters are a growing community at the moment, you wonder how this comes and if you are in contact with them as a member of the party DeBasis, I do this and I hear a number of reasons of why people stopped voting and there's four main reasons that we see and the three first ones is what I'd like to um, show a little presentation here a presentation why the first three and the fourth is a bit like the people behaved in the so-called pandemics <clears throat> and so if we have time I can address this as well and the first three reasons are the interesting reasons because they are easy to um, argue. I would like to share my screen if I can find it. Can you see my screen? <coughs> yes, not quite yet. It's coming up. Now it looks beautiful. Okay, so the first group, the first two groups think that if you listen to them, they say not voting has a positive effect for them on the result. And I would uh, follow the question whether this is true or not, and how do I get to that? from their point of view positive effect means they think they with not voting they would take votes away from the parties and the question is is that really the case <laughs> and now I took the state elections in Lower Saxony in October 22 and um, calculated this that the non-voters take votes from the established parties. So if you add all this, you get 100%, and you see the non-voters are the biggest group with 40%, and that is how they perceive themselves. This first group sees itself as the strongest group. They call themselves as a fraction or party even, and probably they do think that this has the effect that they want to but unfortunately that is not the case because if we see the real election this is the official uh, of election result and we see that they have not been counted why because the share of the voices um, does not depend on the people entitled to vote but only from the ones who do vote so if you don't vote uh, you are not counted. <clears throat> so that's exactly the opposite effect that they caused from what they wanted to. By not voting, they um, helped the ones to get indirectly more votes for the ones they didn't want to get the votes. They could have cast a vote for a small party then these votes would have been taken away so why are they not a power um, 
their power has to have an effect. They couldn't have got into parliament, and if you don't apply for parliament, you can't be a political power, and you can't um, not get into the par into the parliament and not take the votes away from the others by not voting. So, the group of these people who think that they actively take votes away from the uh, parties by not voting would be nice, but it's not the case. And then there's a second group um, who thinks that enough people don't vote, then the vote, the election, would be invalid. But that's not the case. Independent on the number of people, the vote, the election will never be um, invalid. Nothing about the uh, participation um, is said in the law. So, how do you say about something about um, that's not in the law? The <clears throat> federal election manager said this, um, and she said, uh, often the question is over with the um, participation counts. This is not the case. A vote, an election is only invalid if mistakes are made, and if you're not vote, if you don't vote, it's not a mistake. And um, this is what you said, David. Um, if you vote, you uh, support the system. That's quite right. And if you don't vote, you do as well. And as the vote is always, or the election is always valid, and the other, the remaining voters are always 100% who support the system. And if you don't vote, you don't support the system with your vote, but you transfer this to one of the people who do vote. So this is not an argument, really to say that an election is not uh, supported by not voting. <coughs> you can't delegitimize uh, it, but the question is, do you actively withdraw your base? No, because there's no quorum in a uh, general election. It's different in higher organs like the people's decision, for example. And that's why most uh, people's decisions do not work. But in a, a referendum, a plebiscite, <coughs> um, this is the case. But in no um, party election, there is a minimum participation. <coughs> so the question is, on how far can it be dropped? Well, you have to know there's thousands of candidates. We have 299 uh, electorates by um, 10 parties. So that's thousands of candidates, big parties, small parties <coughs> with direct and indirect candidates. So it's nearly 3,000 direct candidates and the list candidates. And they are definitely going to vote. And they alone would uh, make the election valid. So they will elect themselves, and that will be enough. Uh, just uh, look at the federal um, <coughs> election law, and in the European uh, um, election law, it's the same thing. You cannot, by calling for not voting and uh, not voting, 
is just saying we have to be more and more and more and sometimes they have to we can get something no never it is indeed a great favor that you do to them and <coughs> Unfortunately, the case is um, it's in our bubble, uh, the bubble of the unhappy people. They call for not going to vote. You won't hear this in the main news, and not in radio, and not in the daily newspaper. And if you just uh, go to this bubble, it leads to a distortion, because then only those people who are unhappy with the system won't go to the elections, and all the others will uh, go to the election. And um, one more point is that a movement which would have an opportunity now to change the politics um, gets um, uh, loses that chance. And here, I want to show what you can do to actively um, go up against and get rid of the usual candidates. Well, it's by pushing them out, simply. If these 40% of people who didn't vote, all of them had to had one vote, which I, by accident, called the Basis. Could have been a different party anyway, but the Basis is a party that uh, um, fueled from uh, all of this movement and has the same movement, uh, the motivations as um, many of the people who are unhappy, at least in the core, where some um, looking at the core of it at least. And um, it's the same idea, the same directional thrust, and this is why I put it here. So what do we get here? We see a party with 40%, and now many would say to rule, as an, it would need more than 50%. That's not the case, because it's not the share of votes that uh, counts for the majority, but the share of seats, and that's... Uh, um, calculated to a complex formula and that means normally you need 47 to 48 percent of the votes to get a majority in Parliament and uh, so we could look at a number of candidates to go with maybe you just have to um, uh, draw the devil to the wall and somebody else will do it I won't go further to get not not get into trouble but you could see how easy it would be if these people simply didn't throw their vote away but uh, they all voted and if they voted to one vote then it would be true then the SPD would only have 20 percent only half of the party of the unsatisfied now <clears throat> let's come to the third point of uh, people who don't vote and they say I don't go to the election because I have something against parties fundamentally I don't like parties and parties are only part of the problem and never were a solution and I have to say they are quite right um, as uh, you can't argue against this um, but there is one argue saying argument saying that the parties have made themselves indispensable over the past years. That's um, in the federal uh, um, legislation 
we have or in the uh, law legislation we have um, a rule saying that the secondary vote the vote for the party um, is enough the first votes for the direct candidates is not counted for the majority and if uh, more direct candidates shift the votes then more parties uh, are more people are put to the parliaments from the second vote there's the vote for the party to keep the majority so only the vote for the party leads to the um, to the majority in the parliament and in paragraph 6 of the legislation we see that the state lists can only be submitted by parties so list candidates a direct candidate can go directly and um, they don't lead to majorities in the parties in Germany so we cannot do without parties uh, so if there's nobody else, no other way you have to take the only means that you have and if you say I only want to have direct candidates in the federal parliament I completely agree to that but then you have to get into the position in order to change the uh, legislation and that's a federal legislation which has just been changed in the wrong direction by the way and you can move it in the right direction you can't prohibit parties because they're defined in their basic law and you shouldn't do so either that would lead us to uh, China perhaps but you can make them obsolete you can make them as obsolete as they actually are by saying uh, you don't have the majority by the secondary vote by the party vote by from all candidates and the best may win for example and that is something you have to get to so it's like a dog biting its own tail so you have to take that uncomfortable way through the parties first of all in order to say then for the future we're gonna change the rules and um, I don't want to do advertising for my party here but it is one of the core goals of why I joined the party because they want to do exactly that change and this has to be one of the first things that a newly established party has to do because there's always the risk that we have a repetition of what we've seen with the Greens and with all the others as soon as they get to power they are in the system the one of the first things that a party like this do um, has to be in whatever parliament they are they should change this in order to um, disempower themselves in that sense so and why do we have to do that why do we have to get to Parliament to this I would like to show what power is really or at least for me direct power political power that is uh, because many people have a different opinion of this power is not wanting to do thing uh, wanting to do something but being able to execute things to enforce things so if I do a new financial law and I'm not able to and jail people if they don't follow it I don't have to do the law 
So, power, direct power, is always is uh, set up by three powers in Germany. Everybody knows them, but many people think that they are independent of each other. <coughs> and um, I have the um, legislative pause um, signaling here, um, symbolized by the politician. That's a bit different. Uh, the federal parliament is part of the executive force as uh, the enforcement and uh, the uh, laws and, and the judges um, apply them and the police and the administration are part of this. And looking at these three, who of them has the power to change things? And these are the lawmakers and that is the federal parliament, but not as a whole, but the federal parliament is split up in government and opposition which is defined by the majority of the government. And now you should know by now that what the government proposes as law, the whole parliament has to uh, vote on that. If it's not a two-third majority or three-quarter majority, a simple majority is enough, the government can approve any law they want. And we just laughed about King Jong-um in Korea, who only allowed three haircuts. As a male, you could only use three haircuts. would be disaster for me. And we just laughed about this. But our federal government could do that. They just needed to explain that certain haircuts um, are prone to lice and that transmit uh, diseases which could be lethal and or deadly and then somebody goes there and say this is not the case that's against the dignity of the human being and then of course that's right and that's it so this federal government has nearly dictatorial powers of course with the coalition it has tried to balance this a bit so that they quarrel and discuss but um, not really to put out the worst goals, but if they join up forces, they can do whatever they like, or nearly whatever they like. And the opposition is always a paper tiger. They can't uh, stop any law, and they can't come up with their own law because they will be outvoted. And uh, now, I could skip this. Um, um, one thing is rallies. Rallies always think they just have to be more and more people on the streets to get what no law has ever been made on the streets they can just demand things and there is demonstrations that seem to have success because they have a goal they demand something which politics wants to do Fridays for Future is a good example here and then it looks as if politics followed the uh, demonstrators but if the demonstrators asked for something that the politic politicians don't want like we did uh, people who were against the corona measures you will never get anywhere how many you may be and the second is petitions there's many people who do petitions uh, most uh, don't even send them where they should go. There's this petition uh, committee in the federal parliament where these petitions should go. And 
They publish it for four weeks <clears throat> and a petition with that gets 50,000 signatures is then addressed and looked at by the committee and the committee decides whether it will present the petition to the parliament or not. And even if you get to that goal and present it to the parliament, but it has something that the government doesn't want, it's cut off. So with petitions you don't get anywhere and what you get least far with is with revolutions. We have no powers. We can't, uh, we don't have weapons. We can't storm parliament. The parliament is secured. Every administration building is secured with a power and a, we can't get up against without weapon. One thing um, that would work, um, would work uh, and actually worked once was a boycott. And why do I say this? It worked. I think that the general um, vaccination mandate didn't, um, wasn't, um, wasn't uh, put up. It was because the test bubble in the hospitals where it was mandatory didn't work. They saw that 18, 20 percent, I don't know, people simply left their jobs instead of getting the jab. And they saw they are indispensable and this is why they didn't do it. And that is something that works. That makes the state powerless and they won't do the same problem, the same mistake again. So a boycott would work, but um, if you said this, uh, you'd have to start. If enough people go along, if another people, enough people join, and if you start by that, you are bound to fail. I can say where we 80 percent uh, are happy, and we uh, all of us don't want to pay the fees for the radio. Why do we still? If 80% of the people stop paying, really, then the radio would shut up immediately and the state wouldn't be able to enforce it. What do they want to do? So, okay. A word about rallies. There's one effect that they could have, it could have, if people take to the streets, if it is against a single politician and just before elections, then the demonstrators could pressurize the politician by not uh, saying not to vote again. But uh, that, of course, is not going to work if they don't vote anyway. That'll take that pressure away. The federal parliament over this decades uh, has pre created a safety zone for itself which is invincible. Um, parliamentarians uh, cannot face criminal charges. So you can't handcuff them and arrest them. It's not possible. They can't be taken in front of court for what they do in the parliament and what they say. And if you want to lift that, then who can do it? The parliament itself, by majority vote. And this is why opposition politicians are often or sometimes found 
um, on the uh, facing themselves against criminal charges because there is a majority in Parliament to do that. Good Rollins uh, was a case here who was kicked out of Parliament um, and the Parliament and the government can't be kicked out from the outside. On the state level it's different because there is a higher legislative uh, body which is the plebiscite. <clears throat> so Article 20, Section 2 defines that all power is uh, given to the people and it is cast by votes and elections and this referendum would be this special body that is higher than a federal parliament, a state parliament, not a federal parliament, and that could, in extreme cases, um, remove the uh, government. That was tried, but usually um, this is banned in public because the media doesn't participate and there is not enough participation. And as I have just said, um, there is a quorum and that is quite high so you have to get enough people to join that and the Parliament and now uh, the stream has frozen just a minute Holger <coughs> you just need to repeat the last couple of sentences you've just been we were just dropped out. Maybe you could just um, repeat the thing about the parliament. So after you said that the state parliaments could be um, chased out of office, out of office by a referendum. Um, yes, that's what I said. The German basic law says that from the state level downwards. Um, the uh, office uh, of a state government could be uh, uh, the government could be forced to step down from office so this is what we have here and uh, this referendum is a special body of legislation uh, comparable to the uh, general meeting in an association which uh, is set up to different certain rules and uh, certain circumstances but and it can do a lot the problem is that it is not supported by the media if uh, the goals are not politically wanted and with that it is usually um, pointless there is a very high quorum and usually this uh, is the hurdle that the referendum can't take. And this graphic here shows the ways to dissolve the federal parliament. And what we don't see here is the um, electorate, the people, none of these can do that. And now the whole system has one weak point, which is the election. The election, or every politician, every four years on uh, federal level, on state level, every five years, they have to face elections. And if we look at the four powers, which I just talked about, the two lower ones, the executive and the legal forces, are 
professionals, you have to get your training, you have to have academic training, you have to apply, you have to have skills. But the legislative, the body, the um, lawmakers are elections, similar as the chair in a party or a club. And that's the weakness, that's the weak point, because then I have to see, I have to be able to read my own chart. <clears throat> so they do everything possible to get the vote result that they wish for and they manage to do so every time you see that by the forecast being quite precise um, the result and the forecast only varies by a percent or what, a half a percent and you of course you wonder how they do it some people say it's fraud no it's not it's quite simple the mainstream media so you look at the candidates you want to have um, since 2020 until 21 there was mainly Karl Lauterbach, Baerbock and Habeck. They were the ones that they wanted to get in. And they are brought to all talk shows, breakfast shows. They are always mentioned. Again, they are omnipresent. And the elector tends to give their vote to something, to somebody they think they know. And people who are not in the public or not so much present in the public, usually they get fewer votes than those who are constantly seen on TV. And at the same time, the unsatisfied people are encouraged not to vote. And so now they don't uh, look, at, they don't watch uh, 8 o'clock news, and if they do, they don't believe it, and they don't do what is said there and um, in their own movements there are people who call uh, to not to go to the elections and this is fatal because every extra parliamentarian opposition has the chance of a real political change so they all do the same and if there is an extra parliamentarian opposition, that's the uh, general title, the subsumizing um, anti-movements. So whenever there is an opposition outside of parliament in the population, if there is many people unsatisfied and they work on a single topic, then there is an opportunity for a new party. Then these things can change. And the first um, opposition came out in the 60s, and that was a peace movement which um, um, uh, stopped, stepped up against the first uh, big coalition between the two major parties in Germany. And this, with a couple of starting um, problems in the start, and uh, after they combined with anti-nuclear movement, they became the Greens. And they made it to Parliament early in the early 80s. And there was a second extra parliamentarian opposition, which came up in 2015, which uh, led to Pegida demonstrations. And that, in turn, led in 2017 the AFD party to be elected. 
So why do we do this? Why do we have this? Why are they not better infiltrated? Because it's quite comfortable for a political system to have a loud protest movement which uh, takes the work, you have to send police there, it costs uh, money. If you have that in parliamentarian opposition and uh, let it not take grip. And they did that with the Greens until they were not green anymore and then they were allowed to join the party. And the AFD is the same thing. Uh, we see they are opposition and the opposition in, in Germany cannot do anything. Now they had a problem. They had this opposition outside of Parliament which formed in March 2020. It was massive. Something big was unseen in Germany. Wolfgang uh, called for that and uh, we had the hygiene dean demonstrations from Anselm Lemps and it started. It really started. And if we had given uh, a party to that, it would have wouldn't have ended in uh, opposition. And this is why I think they tried everything possible to stop such a party. And uh, it happened the following way: first, the party was established. That was by mid-April but it only existed for 11 days but it all it, in these 11 days it took uh, 17,000 70,000 members and uh, of course then the party was stopped by its own initiators one of them started a second party and a third party and uh, since then they had to decide what party they wanted to go so that was a splitting and a weakening and all of these parties simply dwindled away to meaninglessness. And then on the 4th of July, the remainders of the first party, which was called uh, Resistance 2020 at the time, founded the base, the Basis. And this party again grew so quickly that it couldn't be ignored easily anymore. And it actually um, had candidates in all 299 um, municipalities and uh, all 16 states, or 15 states out of 16. And if that had gone ahead, the traditional parties would have gotten a, a big problem. So what happened on uh, 20 uh, on 31st of July 2020? there was an inquiry to the scientific services of the uh, parliament uh, asking whether the uh, election could be postponed of course under the cover of uh, covid and the answer was no it can't happen it can only happen in case of war and then from august we saw something very interesting you all remember the rallies um, that uh, came to the demonstrations with the federal uh, law um, and uh, the police told them to not vote for the federal law with the law text in their hands and that was stopped immediately and then suddenly there was a peace contract um, they asked for um, a constitution and 
epically people were asked not to vote and that led this big extra-parliamentarian uh, extra opposition who should have elected their own parties didn't go to vote and all of this um, took place the dilemma it wasn't stopped on the 26th of September 21 so but if we l recall what happened it could only be that way that would have been the only exit and we missed it that's what we have to say and um, this is a drawing saying on the two levels one is the demonstration area the top um, the bottom and the top is the party movement and the effectiveness in the beginning we have the extra parliamentarian opposition um, coming up with claims and now if we go down they call for a demonstration and voice their demands and they go back home and see it is not fulfilled and then they go back to the street and think they have to go back to the street again and again and again and it's going to happen it's not this is the go back to start point that's uh, structural if not it would something would happen now look at the top the top um, the uh, there is a party this party is selected to part to Parliament and then it moves into being a parliamentarian opposition at least on the paper it is and then it has to get a majority in the Parliament and then it can implement its goals and that is the only way on how to get to that goal and another one would be boycott but then actually everybody would have to be motivated to courageously um, participate so for example in the time of mask wearing um, we told people don't go to shop in this shop until they allow you in with mask if we had done that they would have allowed us in but we didn't do that didn't work we probably wouldn't have gotten the people because every sent every sentence that starts if you have enough people is uh, bound to fail as I said okay and uh, I'll come to the end I'll come to the end and uh, there's one more reason also if there's no big opposition outside of Parliament you shouldn't you should go to vote <coughs> the reason is a, a vote an election has two effects it creates a, a majority in Parliament that is what it does and to fund the parties how does that work there is a fund which was two million in the past because Merkel in 2018 increased it the um, courts um, restricted it I don't know how big it was I think it's 25 million less still quite a bit so um, I'll I assume 200 200 million you said 2 million it's 200 million yes 200 million sorry um, that is completely emptied out over the parties after the election that's something that we have to know and every party which at least got half a percent in second votes so that's the votes counting for the parties 
um, in uh, in the federal parliament, in the state parliaments, it is one percent. Is participated helps, and it gets one euro six cents for every vote it got, and. 45% for every euro of donations or member fees or any other personal contributions made. So, simply by getting a small party over this half a percentage in the federal parliament, you can get money from the big ones and it's big sums. 2021, out of these 200 million euros, the, all, nearly all of it, 192.7, went to the eight established parties in the federal government. And uh, now I can't read the top line, but <coughs> could you read it out? So the SPD alone got 56.1 million, CDU 50 million euro, the Green 30 million, 30.1 million euro. So now just think that a large share of this is this is the major income of a party that's what they do their lecture uh, their people with and uh, every euro that you take away is worth it if I go to an election and I have no big party and I know I can't change the system I only uh, can select uh, ping pong one of the established ones, whoever it is, or I give my voice to a small party which I think is not going to get into the federal parliament, but if I can lift it beyond this 0.5%, I give a euro by them, one euro six to be precise. That alone is a reason to go to vote. Well, right. So, um, those unhappy people who certainly do not go to the elections, well, they don't harm the system they want to remove, and they will not bring about political change, so they um, are not even harming their own party, well, if it doesn't exist, um, well, they harm the entire outcome of the elections, and there are the Green Party has seen it, and uh, well, uh, later they should not complain and say, oh well, it is only a few people who have um, a fraction of uh, people eligible to vote voted them. Well, okay, the non-voters do not contribute to the election results. There is another um, fact that I included. I was hesitating, however but I finally included it. Um, it is a group that believes that the election results would uh, even be fixed even before the elections. And many people of that group see it as a sign, the election results and the fractions and the figures as a proof of um, the, you know, falsification of results. They say that um, the results were entirely clear before the election, so it would not even be possible to um, um, create more ballot um, 
lists, you know, and um, often, you know, um, it is uh, the volunteers that uh, hand out the ballot paper or voting paper and uh, that uh, later select um, the ballot papers. At the regional elections in Hamburg, we saw it in one or two election locations. Something happened that basically should not happen. It is that a whole series of um, votes that were intended for the Greens were um, allocated to the Liberals, to the FDP. So uh, finally, they ended up in the town hall, you know, as being elected, but then they got thrown out uh, once this was uncovered. In Berlin, there were locations where more ballot papers were handed in than registered voters. So basically, this can come about only if uh, somebody has a wrong idea of how many non-voters would not um, show up. So um, volunteers have a possibility to do that at 7.59. It is uh, one minute before the polling stations open, before they are under constant supervision. So I cannot claim this is true. There is only a certain correlation. I cannot swear by that fact. But should there be any election manipulations in Germany, it is uh, this way that uh, this can uh, hold true only of a few polling stations, and a polling station does not have such a lot of uh, power. You know, there may be 1,000, or when it comes to the crunch, maybe 2,000 um, um, voters, and we have millions of people eligible to vote. And if the one or the other election assistant, uh, you know, messes up something, um, it does not influence the final result. And every person eligible to vote has a right, and they should really exercise that right to be um, observer. You can simply go to a location and be an observer, and also tell these people, even after the location has been closed, you can uh, ask to be an observer. Of course, you have to shut up. You must not talk, but you can check where the cross is and uh, where um, the tick in the list will be made. So ultimately, this is everything I wanted to comment. Actually, right now, this is how to dial out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this interesting explanation. and. Actually, I have never thought about it this way, and uh, we have talked about it several times, and uh, well, this uh, financial traces you can leave are actually considerable, and actually the risk of non-voting uh, harming the system and actually, this enables uh, manipulation of elections at all because you will not appear in the masses. Well, what does my colleague say? Well, 
It is very interesting, and this was a very successful um, presentation. I'm glad we talked about it because otherwise uh, one might uh, argue it is a very polemic um, approach. We can now enter the discussion. I didn't know um, this uh, election fraud was a topic today, but um, as an opposition, in uh, the essence, we agree because, uh, well, um, instead of election fraud, um, uh, election boycott is really among the tools that I approve. And I have got a number of notes, and I would like to give a number of comments. And uh, well, looking down in history, um, it is uh, interesting to hear your quintessence. Well, the French uh, Revolution and the so-called revolution and the so-called GDR, if you want to call it this way, uh, there are certainly others um, who, um, you know, created the new system, whether it was better or not, I don't know, but it is not doomed to fail right from the start. And I would say absolutism was, um, uh, you know, rightfully gained its name, and people did not have an idea that there was a system next to or apart from the ruling system, and uh, this uh, election system really makes you lose your imagination because you keep thinking about it. Well, when it comes to the election system, this may not have a role to play at all. In my individual case, and then actually, um, with the extra parliamentary opposition that is being planted into the system, which at the same time is uh, being stripped of its uh, power. This may hold true of AFD, and there may be another example of the um, Omarche party, you know, in France, but now it's the same game uh, they're playing again, and basically it's uh, on a different basis. And um, another example, it is criticizing the system, and ultimately they were, you know, deactivated. And in Greece, of course, um, the um, the European Central Bank and the so-called Grexit. And well, ultimately, uh, there were no banknotes available at uh, the cash machines at the ATM. This was uh, really the first uh, step into the uh, failure of uh, the system. And then uh, this minister was removed from office. So I don't know why the, the re outcome nowadays and in our case should be any different because this uh, extra parliamentary circles that are viewed as being monolithic, I think on the contrary this is not the case because uh, also from my circle of friends, uh, former CDU voters, 
um, that may even have elected the SPD party, but 10 or 15 years ago they said they were fed up because the outcome was always the same. It is not necessarily those people who were against the COVID measures. For that reason, I do not believe that everything is behind the basis, but there are people who do not want this representative democracy that they don't feel represented by. Well, that's very interesting because this is uh, the only point where the extra parliamentary opposition comes about, you know, if large parts of the population don't feel represented uh, anymore. Well, you touched upon different uh, examples. Well, extra parliamentary opposition, this can work. Uh, looking at the French Revolution, but I would contradict. I think this only enabled the French Revolution, a parliamentary system. So uh, a politician system, you know, with full-time politicians, uh, they no longer want a monarch in this country anymore. But this also led to the following fact. Well, the Duke of Liechtenstein uh, said it quite correctly, and this is years ago, and he said, like, if uh, the Austrian Chancellor is part of the building team, he can leave, and the next one will take over. And so, um, well, he messed it up, not me. You know, if I fail, I will have to be criticized for my whole life. So the French Revolution and the new concept of democracy, the basis of what we are fighting today has been created, you know, because people are simply removed from office and you can't get them anymore. For that reason, I would not call it a true revolution, this French Revolution. And in 1989, the Mozart, um, uh, the uh, Monday demonstrations in the former GDR, uh, well, I was not part of them, but if I'm 54 years old now, and if I look back on politics in the last few decades, you know, nothing happened by coincidence. Um, Honecker said, oh, there are so many demonstrators, they're all against me, what should we do? And then he passed uh, the stick to Egon Krenz, and there was a slip of the tongue, and we know about its consequences. But anyways, um, like the Fridays for Future demonstrations, um, they um, may have supported the system, right? Yes, maybe we have to see things in perspective. Well, I've got a question. What system should we advocate and what protects us from becoming the basis for what the Green Party had? We can notice it already. There are people pushed into all kinds of parties in order to avoid that things happen that the founders had in mind. They will always ensure that such plans will fail. My idea is the following. One should find a way with um, first and secondary votes and to merge them if uh, there 
could be a club for finding a candidate, a political party that says, well, we will have a list of candidates, only um, direct candidates, okay? And we have a list, okay? And we can uh, vote them directly. It's not the political party that uh, nominates them, but everybody who votes us, okay? You're all invited to join us, and uh, you can l um, vote a list of direct candidates. This uh, coexistence between first and second votes um, cannot, they cannot neutralize each other, and this is more in the direction of direct democracy. The second vow then needs to be that somebody who does not join in that system can, in his constituency, well, they can then make sure that they will be replaced. and. Um, as um, political party candidates, I don't know. I have no solution to that. But I want to avoid that uh, people will be removed from office and that no parliamentary elections will take place, but that um, candidates would be renewed on a rolling basis any time if the party is no longer happy with them. So we would have an actively working Bundestag, and that is not renewed every four years, but uh, that people can stay only if they enjoy the confidence of the people. Couldn't we find such a way to implement such a system under the current legislation? It would be my hope that we think about it and that we think about the legal basis for such an idea. Maybe we could go first step at least and um, a candidate finding party could also appeal to those people who reject like um, if we only organize that you can elect people whom you trust and to that end in this constituency we will um, organize a series of events and then we will um, show them like people who are selected thanks to the fact that they have the majority of vote. This is my dream. One could give it a try, and I would like to discuss this idea with the people who are legal experts, and I would like to identify what is possible now and what could be made possible now. Well, these were two questions, really. The second question actually is more important, like um, uh, um, the political parties act does not say that um, you cannot have direct candidates, but it says in the federal election law in Article 6, this prevents it, and it's a vicious circle, really, without changing that. And then we would have a number of direct candidates, but they wouldn't have a say because they don't form majorities, because, you know, I don't like that either, Wolfgang, but majorities um, may come about only on the basis of secondary votes. And now there are many, many people who say that the Federal Constitutional Court 
had um, called um, the federal electoral law as non-conformous with the um, uh, with the basic law, but actually. Um, there were so many overhang mandates, and in 2013, um, this was rectified with the um, equalization mandates, and now the Bundestag, you know, has become far too big. How to solve that? Well, we will simply take out the direct candidates in order to make it smaller. So if you have um, too many direct candidates, you may not even um, be able to govern in the Bundestag. So the electoral law has to be changed and uh, the regional electoral laws. And there is one federal state where it works, and this is Baden-Württemberg. They only have first votes, but this is being changed. And the first question that you asked, what can we do? in order to prevent what keeps happening, like political parties that um, make a um, lot of promises. They get elected and they forget about their promises. Well, <coughs> changing the electoral law would be the first effective step, and it doesn't read in the basic law, but these are national laws. and with the parliamentary majority in the Bundestag, you can change them. So the electoral law reform um, has certain um, shortcomings, but it could have been the other way around. One could rewrite the electoral law. The constitutional judges only said the uh, citizens must be able to make a decision, and this must not be contracted by a different OK, it should read, if you elect us, if you enable us to change the electoral law, there will be direct candidates only. Is that the right procedure? And we will do that within the first year. And you, within the first year, if you give us the majority, we will make sure that there will only be candidates of your confidence and the political parties will no longer be able, one shouldn't ban political parties in Germany because otherwise it would be like in China. And by the way, it's been defined in the basic law, but you can make it totally obsolete. The political parties could um, make policy, but they would not have a right to make uh, parliamentary uh, politics. And ultimately, I think it would take quite a while until the population was uh, aware of that and become active. So um, in the meantime, the political parties would certainly interfere a lot. But uh, you could also change the media state treaty. Okay. Then let's make four demands, not more. So four demands that could be uh, that you don't forget about and that nobody else does. And these two things have to be communicated by via the media and the introduction of direct candidatures and um, 
ruling out party policy as a brown-nosing career for something we don't know because this is terrible and I only want politicians where people say oh yes we know him and we asked him and we will send him and if he messes it up we will uh, rescind our vote so if they waste our um, confidence they have to come back and must no longer stay in the parliament yes but once again in order to change that Sorry, I was going to say something. To that end, in the first place, you need to be in a governing position, and uh, so far, you need to do it as a political party. Yes, we will get there. Right, so I think it is a um, an error because everything has been whitewashed and uh, there are political interests and you can also see it by the small um, parties and people who see a chance for themselves and as a professional politician you do not need any uh, qualification so why would you ask for any um, virtues among political parties? So if you would sincerely hope for that, why expect that it would be yes, because it's old boys' networks. Instead, citizens need to elect their direct candidates, CDU, SPD, and you know, they sit together and only um, select politicians, then old boys' networks will be obsolete. Yes, okay, but within the now existing system um, that is composed of old boys' networks, this is um, how you have to get there, and I don't see that, and more or less it is a council system. It is uh, just, uh, you know, giving it a different name, but it has a little to do with the parliamentary system we are used to. So I'm um, concerning the details. We do not disagree, but um, Holger really um, formulated it in a way that it can um, change the system only from within. That's a big error to my mind, and one could waste a lot of time for a stillborn child, if you like. Okay, then uh, tell me one alternative. Yes, that's difficult to time to tell. And um, we do have means at hand. I have already made suggestions, but uh, one should simply take the initiative, and uh, there are certainly um, petitions, and I will be happy to select them. But if you waste your energy by trying to work within the parliamentary system, it will not work. And this is part and parcel of the entire system that you move in, and you somehow you will be kind of um, neutralized. Yes, even if you have a majority, like uh, you can read an animal farm, you will no longer have, have a system that 
will be smoothly working, you know, after the French Revolution, then you have Napoleon or something, or another dictator, uh, there is always something, so it is worth nothing. You really have to think about sustainability in your plans, how can it continue to work? And as an election program, and um, it's simply to awaken the longing to bring about true change and uh, this tiredness, I mean, we are the people. Why can't we decide ourselves um, whom we will entrust with our power? This is what we want to achieve, so no political party can interfere. Yes, but this is being put to the question. Ultimately, you do elect a party. This is what it boils down to, uh, apart from the perspective. So, first of all, no matter who is a member, is, but ultimately, the concept is still the same for that reason, you know, ultimately political parties means, um, you know, reducing the citizen to, uh, you know, go to the ballot box every four years. Um, it is really legal incapacitation. So I agree with you on the goals, but concerning the journey, I do not think it makes sense to try it by abolishing political parties, but you should delegitimize the old system. Why not? Why not? Well, these are things that are difficult to comprehend. Well, you can even be sharper here. Yeah, it is a an election dictatorship. So as long as people are uh, reigning and uh, if they can't reach a consensus, you know, when it comes to key decisions and if they are um, always working together, it is like a dictatorship because they simply obtain uh, their goals. And now um, I'm waiting for your shitstorm, but. Um, it's about dictators who delegitimize their own power in the end. So if the caucus, um, caucuses um, um, worked out a concept that is not based on violence, I would be happy to take a look at that concept. But um, simply uh, sticking yourself to the road um, is not leading anywhere. Okay, you can get rid of uh, frustrations and signing a petition. Um, it is really a petition and, um, well, the means are missing that would be effective and a dictator, becoming a dictator in this country in order to change the government, I do not want to mention the same term again and then to get rid of your own power. Not something that you could do without a dictator because if the great majority of the people is unhappy and they say we want to change things and uh, give their vote, uh, this power, to a party which doesn't want to behave as a party afterwards and observes what they do and makes sure that it does what it promised because otherwise it'll be gone next time. So that is, I think, something which it's a tool that you could offer and 
A second thing I think is important, we talk about the federal government and so on, we have the different uh, levels of the state and I think the discussion subsumed as the title there's no uh, democracy without subsidiarity is a very, very important finding which uh, many people who work with the systems of uh, politics subsidiarity is thing, uh, the thing. You have to look at what should the federal state do? What can't you give into the hands of somebody who's far away? What can we do? What can we do as a society? That is very important and uh, so important that I would immediately establish a commission with great popular participation. What are we going to leave to the municipalities? What are we going to leave to the federal states? What are we going to leave to the federal state? And what can we do ourselves? That's a very important discussion which I would immediately put up a commission for that looks at this as a next step of uh, self-disempowerment of politics. Well, we do have that to a large extent, actually. I uh, thought when the general vaccine mandate was not over yet, how to get out of this, and when it got worse and worse, I actually thought to make use of this uh, communal municipality autonomy and uh, just do a municipality and look at the tasks a community has. And that's a lot. It starts with schooling, um, youth and uh, registration office, uh, health. There's lots of things that are in the hands of the communities, but it could be much, much more. <clears throat> uh, we have a discussion. Yes, I would like to uh, contribute a thought uh, coming back to your approach. If we had an opportunity to completely unplug from the system by a wonder or any technical development or whatever, we would be completely independent of energy. For example, we could produce our own energy. There's great new possibilities. Then many questions wouldn't arise anymore. Uh, we could desalinate water, we could green Sahara, and we have great, uh, we would have great means to support ourselves. Probably the whole system would change because you don't have all that competition anymore. And you could say, no matter what you do, it's not, it doesn't touch us. As long as we don't have that kind of consolation, I do see the probability that what Holger says that um, we have to take effect with inside the system, but we also have to make sure that whoever takes over these tasks is not corrupted or can't be corrupted himself. And if we think about the bases or small party XY who want to become active, we can't have the fact that suddenly we have ideas that you have to adapt to this system or follow the traditional system and get in and behave exactly the way as it is done and seen with the standard parties. And the only thing that can protect us here is the swarm. The people, the electorate, the members, 
Just as it is on the overall level, the permanent participation of everyone in a whatever structured way. It can't be just uh, everybody gobbling along. So there has to be a way of the information flowing um, up, uh, down, uh, up, down, and uh, bottom up and uh, that people can't be silenced and so on. So if, for example, we have a decision body and a party saying now the uh, members cannot uh, file any applications anymore, you have to move through all the hierarchies to get decisions, that's the wrong way. That is just the hierarchy uh, where at a certain point a um, composition, uh, decision competency is put together just as we have it on now on the government level, EU level, and then it can be infiltrated and particulate interests can be put forward. That can't be the case. It can only be the way that we make sure by many, many people looking at the decision processes and voicing their disconsent and having opportunity to um, publicize this, make this public and create pressure. That's important. That's why all the information has to get out. That's why everybody has to know everything. Critical voices have to be heard if there are speeches that are held elsewhere um, that start people thinking have to be published so that people can look at it, what has been said, and uh, sessions have to be recorded, uh, discussions with lobbyists have to be made transparent, for example, also maybe with recordings, with protocols, uh, so maximum transparency, clear ways, clear decisions, and maximum participation of the citizens in in any entity like the Basis or another small party, a big party, maybe the SPD is suddenly interested in this kind of project, then if you can show that this works on small scale, I think it'll be easy to use this as a blueprint and uh, generated out through the plastic, but that made public, but that has to be made sure. If this is not lived out, if the permanent uh, cooperation and co-determination from the base is not lived out, it won't fly. And if we just have to move through all the institutions like the students' movements from the uh, late 60s, my, my parents were part of that, uh, for example, and then they, on the way there, are uh, corrupted by power and money, then it's not going to work. And because as the individual is always at risk of being under pressure, wanting power, wanting money, and uh, peer pressure, for example, in a small group, if you are a set-up team, you do things, where the uh, view from the outside is missing. Uh, this uh, was the case in the federal parliament, what Dr. Marx said at the general party meeting a couple of weeks ago. It's important that it's not small groups who decide anything. It's always have to have the um, the queer thinkers from outside, uh, the critical thinkers coming back, and that has to be promoted in this kind of structure. And I think the more we get into, if we look at infiltration, for example, yes, you can do that, you can take uh, 100 people, but you can't do that with 30,000 people. You can't uh, provide 30,000 people just to play a trick. 
But as soon as you have a small group, things get dangerous, and then the whole swarm. People have to be able to look from the outside. They have to be able to disturb the processes,、um, so that people can't get off the track and take their own road. If we can do that, then we have opportunity to change the system. Would be even bigger if it weren't be limited to party membership. Yes, but here we have the problem that、uh, the decision making, the information, is difficult because you have a le level of attention. People look there, are focused on Ukraine. Others are focused on the、um, weaknesses in learning of their children. Others try to make monies, and, and others are in love and、uh, can think of anything, and they miss out on things. But if I have a structure, and this is something that we have in the bases. There is a work group, and they find a decision can't be the case. It has to be clear. We are making a decision, and you have an organ like that, a body, a structure where an initiative is sent out, and that should raise the awareness. An important decision is to be made in the parliament.、Uh, so not from hundreds of decisions that are made on the day. This one is important. Then we need mechanisms that clarify this, making sure that important decisions are found and noted, and people、um, can voice their concern there and、uh, vote. I don't know how to do this as yet, but we have to make sure that the important things don't get lost in the masses, and people have to come together. And if it just flows by the many people, you just have a small group of people, a couple of hundred people perhaps. Who meet with thirty and small groups who get in there, or three hundred people come to a meeting,、um, a party meeting or whatever, and decide things for the other thirty thousand. Yeah, but the system is automatically related to the population. The moment that the, somebody becomes a member in the party is more involved. So then it'd be thirty thousand instead of the thirty、uh, deciding for the rest of the group. The group is the problem. Yes, you could see a party. I would, as a, a passing note,、uh, you made that、uh, asterisk.、Um, so just imagine the political system as a, as a fortress.、Uh, the demonstrators shout at them, but they don't care. They want to get in, but they're not allowed. The revolutionary. Wants to break down the walls with a little hammer, can't work, and the smart guy gets that passing note and wait until the door is opened, gets in and opens the door for everyone. I think that's what you have to think it. Yeah, if it did work, it would be nice. But history taught us a different lecture. Wolfgang、uh, used the tool of、uh, the word of the tool. I think we have. To,、uh, it's a pity that we only got the toolbox of the party to think about how we organize ourselves as a society. But I have no better concept apart from、uh, not being、um, entitled to develop it. But、um, it's.、Uh, Crucial that we are in such a narrow line of thought that we can only think in these terms and in these concepts. I think this is the point. Yes, but it's not us who decided it. This is actually federal law, <coughs> and、uh, that stands for all the laws、uh, on legislation that we have.
Well, laws, as we said, in a system that um, I think is not legitimate is not helping it. But the problem is you have to be able to enforce what you uh, want to do. So you need the uh, legal language. Um, we wouldn't have that and we need to have enforcement. We don't have that. We would have that with a boycott. Yes, that's why I say boycott the elections. So maybe it's a bit short now saying this, but if the citizens in the case of the <coughs> French Revolution um, went along the lines of what the emperor said or if the people in the um, <coughs> Democratic Republic of Germany just went along the lines of their laws, that means you play along the rules that you don't want to play along with. <coughs> well, the help came from the outside in the Democratic Republic of Germany. It was Gorbachev, really, who came and uh, in correlation came, I think, two years um, with Helmut Kohl. They uh, were buddies. And so I think in the back room, surely, of course I don't have proof for that, but uh, I have never seen anything in politics happening by themselves. Also the October Revolution in Russia, any revolution really, I don't think this was politically planned, wasn't politically planned. So it's much too risky if it went that way. You could do what you want. <clears throat> if the strongest would win, we were in anarchy. So first we do the revolution together and then we kick the ruler out and then as group one we don't like group B so we kick it out group B and then we have a third group we do a revolution again so that if I talk about uh, power I too I talk about the power of the state which is force actually if you don't pay your radio fee you know that uh, you are physically um, removed from your home and put into jail and um, that's not really what I'm thinking of if I talk about a coup d'etat. A uh, coup d'etat could be much more simple uh, by simply doing it from the inside out. Okay Holger, as you're talking about anarchy and uh, I'm not too well into this but it's always saying f violence and chaos <clears throat> James Corbett for example who I think is a very smart man he sees himself as an anarchist and he has um, a number of approaches which are not uh, anarchic um, but that have a different way of um, um, a dif a differently dif defined uh, uh, sleeping state. You could look at that. This is something that anarchists uh, who are not in the sense of uh, um, anarchy as well as I understand uh, it's not all his ideas that he says um, but uh, these are big thinkers that he quotes and he uh, picks up on and um, the principle 
of uh, common respect, which our basic law says, actually. So there are different uh, designs and structures, and uh, we wouldn't have the problems if our uh, federal uh, basic uh, law would be lived out. If all that would be uh, literally lived, we wouldn't have all these problems. All these things couldn't have happened that we saw over the past three years and before that and what we see coming up on the horizon. But I would like to drill down into what James Corbett did. Maybe you can invite him and maybe he will come up with approaches um, that um, will lead to the system uh, to have more humane structures. Yes, yes, very good. I think this anarchy, maybe that was the wrong word. It doesn't need to lead uh, to chaos. Um, it's just the lack of order and uh, structure. So a structuring order. As an anarchist uh, living, you have problems. Uh, you have an easy game in a structured system because you can depend on the orderliness you're quite right. Yes, you're quite right. That's why I'm laughing. Um, uh, so um, uh, the orderliness uh, protects you against violence. So we're not all the same. That's true. And um, that is, of course, a cushion to uh, live on. Well, what they do in Davos is anarchy. They are anarchists. They use their money because, and they don't keep to the rules. They simply do what they want. These are anarchists, really. Yeah, you're right, actually, yes. And violence um, was exerted enough in the last three years. I think you can't do much more on the streets. Well, uh, what these are anarchists that use the structure. They couldn't, uh, if they were all left on their own, uh, saying we want to have the dictatorship of WHO, but they can't uh, uh, rule through from top to bottom. Well, as an individual anarchist, uh, you take your gun out. Uh, that's laughable. Uh, you have to be organized. Well, only you have to call yourselves a Reichsburger, a Reich citizen, and then you'll be an anarchist quicker than you think. Well, I think this is not right to call it that way. I think this is a, we don't know who does what at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, they don't know either. They don't know themselves. They are fighting still. Yes, but uh, I think there's too many uh, positive aspects in um, the idea of a hierarchy-less um, society rather than aligning it with the structure that we see and the perversion of the structure um, using that word for them. I think this is something that we should reconsider. So uh, lawlessness would be the point. Yeah, we know that from football games there is a referee who can send people off the pitch, but the rules for football are, for soccer that is, now have been changed again and again. Women play can play soccer now, and they can't before. And uh, um, there was the offline before, and uh, there were things, um, and the rules were changed. And um, 
it's the referee who puts in the rules, but he's not. Um, he's he's just a legal guy on the pitch, really. He's executive and legal person at the same time on the pitch, and probably um, we need the rules. We need um, rules for society. If everybody had their own rules, that would be difficult. If you say it's your house, no, it's my house, that wouldn't be an approach. That's not possible. Okay, anyway, yeah. So we do need some structures, and I think from our way, our human way, we tend to find structures. So if anarchy would break out, then um, we could say that is our self-sustainability. And the big groups, if they're big enough to act in a homogeneous way, they would need a leader again. So uh, elect the best. Yes, this is autopoiesis, and uh, that takes us back to the same system. But before it goes off the rail again, we should uh, stop and turn the take the right turn. But that's a philosophical approach. Yes, I would uh, bring in one more spiritual aspect. If it were the case that the people it's always something homo hominum lupus est or amicus est. So what is the internal nature of human being? Is it a wolf or a friend? Then I could imagine it's both, but maybe there are certain circumstances that favor one or the other. We've heard from Professor Rupert or Martz, if I am in a, um, in a dreadful system, then I, I am uh, cut off my opportunities and I pass that on to the others. But if you think about a free constellation, then it is not an inner drive of the people to hit, uh, to kick each other's heads in. I think that is not the inner core, the inner drive of human beings. It's rather, um, um, and as long as there's no lack and I don't have to fight to survive, I would leave in a laissez-faire mode. And I think this is something, maybe it's true, that we are transferring to the 13,500 years of darkness to 13,500 years of light. And uh, maybe a different spirit will rule the internal being of human beings. And we will have different approaches and different questions and have different uh, levels of consciousness. I think many people are starting to see things differently and are starting to look at things closely and uh, have an internal mode wanting to get out of this system of uh, fight. Uh, I think there were not many people who think uh, that this is the right way and your wish to exit the system has the idea as a basis that there something can do different. So things change. Holger, thank you for being with us. I think it's a great discussion that we've had, uh, very peaceful despite of our differing opinions. Well, we are always peaceful, aren't we? Yes, I think it's great to discuss about this in the first place. There can be different approaches and opinion, but uh, if you just um, forward your statements, I think that can only be a starting point. And uh, I think you can have your findings in this discussion.
including the audience and uh, best case so thank you for that yeah the experience that you can discuss and fight and there's nothing bad that's something that I was through in Zurich um, Nayadi was at the stage and I don't agree to him I was critical to him and uh, we could discuss this openly and I, I could see um, they were all there because of the same thing and um, I just said well I'm very happy about this event that finally I can see people discussing strongly and strictly I'm grateful to Mayani for that great good I think it's also good um, in the bases. I'm uh, in discussion groups which are good and productive there are people really concerned about the um, basic democratic approaches and people take care of these things and it's great that you see a productive uh, discussion without vanities yes uh, um, so I'll have to get, go back to the SPD to try it there as well oh, great success in that and all parties we should go to all parties and some parties it's more difficult as others it'll be more easy to do Wolfgang I think um, you should uh, be careful about where you throw the stone and um, I don't know what you're going to throw it into the SPD but it was a joke I'm not masochistic okay in this sense I think we have come to the end of the session for today and I think very inspiring hopefully uh, the audience will continue the discussion and as always uh, the point um, we can only do our work if we are supported by the people who can afford donating to us and I'd like to thank the many um, points that we guess also people pointing out guests so you all contribute to this big work which has come about over the years and I think it's important to carry on with it and uh, for everybody making it uh, freely accessible uh, the findings I'd like to ask for one thing whoever um, wants to download our sessions it's very important as well whatever may happen on the internet so that you can have that information spread out at many places uh, so if you want to have your own collection decentralize the knowledge that's what we are working for and um, do backup copies so that we are um, secured against the information getting lost in this sense a wonderful Friday night and a beautiful long weekend first of May maybe some thoughts of taking to the streets um, and no destruction We'll meet again next week. Thank you and goodbye. I would have to say a lot about the vaccinations, but as all my friends have been killed who were against the vaccination, maybe uh, nobody knows this in Germany. In America, a big number of alternative doctors, holistic doctors, I think um, and scientists as well 
uh, have um, uh, committed suicide. So a number of doctors who have reported about this. Well, it's nearly three years ago when my um, big autism conference in Chicago and my friend Jesh Whitstreet, the main researcher who looked at uh, how to heal autistic children and uh, he published dozens of work of research um, um, on vaccines and the adjuvances, adjuvants in it and he reported on new proceedings to help autistic uh, children and a week later he was found shot uh, dead and I know that Jeff if I knew anybody who didn't have a hint of suicidalness in him it was Jeff and was interpreted as suicide and uh, I know from CIA staff that it wasn't suicide but a very very smartly carried out murder with experts uh, and since then it's more than 30 doctors and scientists who um, allegedly uh, committed suicide this induced heart attack seems to be a very popular method I've seen the devices that do this it's similar like a gun you they fire microwaves at the heart and that leads to immediate um, cardiac arrest uh, friends who work with the CIA showed me how far these weapons are developed and it's quite clear that some friends many uh, people I know um, from this area where I do wonder and uh, I wonder how far my name is up the list and uh, well hopefully you will do so as well um, so the common uh, aspects of the people who were uh, found dead were the ones who objected against the vaccines um, about uh, toxins in the environment and the fight against certain very effective uh, non or four very effective non-pharmaceuticals therapies so there are certain things that I can't detail